What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Sorry I missed last week's episode. I've been traveling to magic conventions, lots of exciting things going on. I passed my audition to the Magic Castle, so that's very exciting. And I'm looking forward to sharing the upcoming episodes with you. Our guest for this episode is Jamie Ian Swiss, a renowned author, thinker, lecturer, teacher in magic. And I'm excited to have him on the show. I met Jamie when I was living in San Diego, and we had a phenomenal meal and some great cocktails and wonderful conversation, and we didn't even take out a deck of cards. But I was happy to have him on the podcast while he was performing at the castle recently. And we have a long, fascinating conversation spanning a bunch of different topics, including growing up in New York and getting into magic, starting Monday Night Magic, the longest off-Broadway running show in New York, that happens to be a magic show, the modern magic climate and current young magicians' lack of resources and mentors, and a lot more. It's a really great episode. I know you're going to love it, so let's get into it quickly. If you haven't already, sign up for our newsletter. That way you can stay up to date on what we're doing. And we started a new service on Art of Magic. It's called the Ambassadors Program, and I think it's something really special, something really important. When you join you don't only get a discount. You don't only get exclusive content. You get access to our Ask an Expert feature, which I think is really something special. We have a team of magicians whose experience spans well over a century. And you can text us, basically, and ask a question. What What do I do? Where can I look? Where should I look? I'm confused. I'm burnout. And we'll do our best to help you. It's kind of like having a magic shop in your pocket. Anyway, I think it's really cool and definitely worth the money. Also discount, also cards, also exclusive content. But the Ask an Expert feature is really awesome. Of course, follow us on all the socials as well, Facebook and Instagram by searching Art of Magic and by searching Magical Thinking Podcast. Hey, you know, if you're not doing anything, maybe give us some likes, follow us, And if you're really bored, I would super appreciate it if you would go on iTunes and leave a review for the podcast. That would be really rad, and I would like it a lot. And if you do that, shoot me an email, podcast at artofmagic.com, and tell me that you did it, and I will tell you how much you mean to me. Also, patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Magical Thinking, if you want to help support the show, go check it out. There's cool exclusive content over there. That's a fun time. That's just stuff I'm doing on the side, and it's exciting. There will be probably some cool stuff up there for Magic Live, which is what I'm doing next week. Anyway, I've rambled enough. Get into Jamie and Swiss's episode. It's really something. You guys are going to love it. Jamie and Swiss, enjoy. Chris. And he's making aged. Yeah, that's the 2002 edition. Because I was going to say, man, you shouldn't be having it stand up like that. No, no. This is wild. He's selling these? Yeah. How much? Uh, I think he sells them for like 200 bucks, 250 bucks. And it's pretty great. It's pretty awesome, right? That's hilarious. That is so wild. You know, I have a first. It's, I own a first. 
Yeah. Pretty good one. That's exciting. And uh, when I first bought it, which was, I mean, I'm not a collector in the sense of, you know, that I have a substantial collection. I don't. I just, I have a few nice things because I've been at it a long time. Yeah. But um, when I bought my copy, uh, which would be, let's see, I remember where I was living. So, be in the late 70s, Mario Grandi, for like a couple of 300 bucks, that's a lot of fucking money. <laughs> um, and my buddy Jeff Ladd, I'm sure you know that name. My buddy Jeff Ladd came, came over and I led him into a conversation about the Ernest Palms, bottom palm, yeah. the top palm, whatever the fuck it was. And uh, I get him talking about it. I said, well, what was the first verse and the second one? No, some shit like this. I get him into this conversation. And I said, well, now wait a minute, I'm not sure about that. And now I just opened the copy and I set it down in front of him. I said, see here? <laughs> So he's sitting with these, reading the thing. Yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. And then he like stops and he goes, What is the fuck? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was pretty great. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in forever. And I, fuck, I spent the last couple of years working on the dirty, on the, Book and I didn't remember that story at all. I'm gonna have to. I have to make a note. I gotta make a note right now and put that in the card book. That's really funny. I, uh, do you know John Bodine? Do you know that? Name? I know that name very well, but I don't think he's a nerd name's collector. I know. Oh, that's how I know the name. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure, sure. And uh, at MagicCon down in San Diego, maybe three, three or four years ago. Uh, this is before the convention had started, and we were going to go to a cocktail bar. We were going to go to uh, Polite, Polite Provisions. Oh, yeah. And I get in the car with him, and he's in his little Subaru, and he's like, how long's the drive? And I was like, I don't know, it's about mm, 15, 20 minutes from downtown. Okay, hey, do you want something to read? And I was like, yeah, sure. Reaches behind the seat, grabs the first edition, and plops it in my lap. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, just, you know, some light reading on nice. the drive. Crazy. That's crazy. That's a tough position to be in, too, with someone who respects, you know, an, an artifact like that. I'm like, what? No, but how, how do I handle it? What's my no, response? No, yeah, well, you just open it and read it. I mean, and um, that's, that's ultimately what I did. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, are you familiar with the name Edward Tufty, by any chance? Um, I'm not. So, a guy named Edward Tufty in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, he crossed that period of time, starting the first book in the early 80s. He wrote four landmark books on information design, okay? Legendary, influential, profoundly influential landmark books. Edward Tufty, T-U-F-T-E. And, um... So, uh, and the first book is The Visual Display of Quantitative Information, which is a, a, a somewhat, it's a book about um, creating information graphics. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was turned on to this book by a friend of mine who was a statistician and also a, a design guy. 
And I fell in love with the book and literally changed the way I saw the world and became a fan. Yeah, it's very nice. I, I never drink pour over, so we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I made my coffee think it's weird, so. Um, you use the mocha pot, right? Yes. Because I mostly drink like cortados. Yeah. yeah. You gotta ease into it, I understand. <laughs> And then I have skim. Okay. So I'll let you milk that to taste. So thanks. So um, anyway, uh, after the second book, um, first one, visual representation. The, the visual display of quantitative information. And. Um, after the second book, my the guy who turned me on to him brought who's uh, worked at a university brought Edward in to lecture so that they could meet him and have lunch. So he could meet him and have lunch. Good thanks. And um, uh, and he told me afterwards that Edward mentioned in passing that one of the subjects he was thinking about for the next book was had something to do with magic. That's all I knew. So uh, I kind of put this in the back of my head. I didn't have time for about six months, literally. And then one night, I had like free time, free head, head space. And I sat down and knowing something about his style and how his books are written, and by the way, these books are not only fabulous and fascinating, but they're also amongst the most beautiful books you've ever seen. They're eight color printing. Oh, wow. There's a very interesting history behind them. But I'll spare you for the moment. So anyway, I sat down, I wrote him like a 10-page letter off the top of my head mm -hmm. about the history of graphic design, graphic illustration in the literature of conjuring. Yeah. And I did it entirely off the top of my head, and then I gave him one page of references. And in the references, I include, uh, oh, and, then I, and I made a, a reference, a mention of two illustrations that exist in the literature of six-fingered hands, mm -hmm. but I didn't tell him where they were. I left that as kind of bait, and I thought to myself, there's a reason I'm telling you this story. So I thought, thought to myself, man, it wouldn't be cool if I got a footnote, you know, maybe I got a footnote in a Tufty book. So then I remember it was like around Thanksgiving week, and I was, I was living in D.C. at the time, but I was visiting New York, and I was crashing on Penn & Teller's couch in their office, as I always did in those days. And uh, I call my answering machine, as one did and uh, in those days. And I get this message. Hi, this is Edward Tufty. This is a wonderful, this is the greatest letter, and uh, please call me. Okay. So I call him. Hi, this is Jamie Swiss. Oh, yes. Uh, this is one of the greatest letters I've ever received. Um, you and I need to write something together. Yeah, okay. You mean like, what do you want to do? An article? A monograph? He goes, I think a chapter in my next book. <laughs> and it was one of those moments where it was like... <laughs> You know, I do card tricks. Um, well, one thing led to another, and I, in fact, in the four books, there is only one collaborative chapter. There is only one author, other author, and it's me. And it's called Explaining Magic. It's in the third book. Um, but the reason I'm telling you the story is because 
So when Edward does these uh, seminars, these all-day seminars, he always brings with him sort of show and tell and talking about design. He always brings a first edition of Galileo's Sunspots. And he brings a first edition of Euclid's Geometry. Because in Euclid's Geometry, they, it's, it has these glued-in three-dimensional oh, wow. illustrations that mm-hmm. fold up. And Edward incorporated this idea in one illustration in the first in the first or second book, and this is where he got the idea from Euclid's geometry. And so the first time Edward and I got together, he came to D.C. and we had dinner at my friend Chip's house, the statistician, and it was like a show and tell night kind of thing where mm-hmm. we would face to face and kind of talk about the chapter and what he wanted to do. And so he brought his. <laughs> these two books with him and I had pulled a half a dozen things out of my library that were interesting and I thought relevant you know and we passed around the books and we sat in the living room and so there I was well, he just kind of waves them at the crowd when he's doing the lectures but here it's fucking Galileo man it's fucking Galileo on sunspots what the fuck but then you sit and you read it yeah so, anyway. <laughs> it's amazing I can't even... Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. That would be like, you know... That would be like holding a first edition of Galileo's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's great. Uh, yeah, I can't... I have nothing to compare that to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Ernest. No, I mean, I get it. I mean, what... Fuck, man. When I... Uh, well, I'll tell you. In magic... I'm trying to think. When was the first time I held a first edition... Um, of uh, of uh, of uh, I'm having a brain fart. I'm God, I'm terrible names of anything. Um, 1584. Discovery which Discovery. I've held a number of first and seconds. I'm trying to think. When was the first time I held it first? I think it was at. I think it was at Davenport's in London. And then a second at Gordon, um, Gordon, uh, the Scottish guy. Beam? No, go Scott, Bruce? Scott, Scotland. Gordon Bruce. Gordon Bruce's house. He's got a second. And those firsts are, they are gorgeous. The paper is uh, acid-free, and so they are, they are stunning. You would never think, I mean, unless you recognize, you, you recognize the style of the binding, yes. Yeah. But to just open up and look at the quality of the print, you don't first go, oh, this is 400 years old. You don't know. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty awesome. And then I was in D.C., you know, I lived in D.C. in the late 80s. And so I spent, I got friendly with a woman named Joan Higson or something like that. She was one of a number of curators at the Library of Congress in the Rare Book Collection. But she was the one who she got interested because of someone's queries. Can't think of what it was right now. Someone's persistent queries about certain books in the Magic Collection. Um, she got interested and started tracking stuff down and she kind of rescued a lot of the Magic Collection. The Houdini collection was all in one place, I think, but there was other stuff. And there, you know, there's these original Huffsons or props. 
So anyway, I got friendly with her, and I spent a lot of time in the rare reading room. Uh, well, she brought me into the stacks. And so she was handing me, you know, Houdini's family Bible, and, you know, like the, which is like the only book that he ever signed, Eric Weiss. And, uh, and I read, I sat in the reading room. That's the first time I read um, Hocus Pocus. Before you could get a reprint, mm-hmm. you know, before there was a commercially available reprint. I read Hocus Pocus Jr. there. Um, Harry's copy. Oh, wow. A uh, bunch of stuff like that. A bunch of those early 18th century and 17th century stuff. I all read sitting sitting there in that rare reading room and some of them being, being Harry's copy. So that was pretty cool. And then... Before this happened, before she rescued everything, and before I knew her, so one day Daryl, was it Daryl? Was it Williamson? No, it was Williamson came to town. No, Williamson was in town. Daryl came to visit. Of course, that's where Williamson lived in those days. And uh, Daryl came to visit. So we so we're hanging out for the day, and we decide to go to this is eighty five, eighty six. We just probably eighty five. So we decide to go to um, Library of Congress because we'd heard. Oh, because one of them said, I think it was Williamson said, you know, I've always heard. I think that's what happened. It was like the three of us were out to lunch or something, and Dave said something like, you know, I've always heard that there's some half sensor props there. Why don't we go find out? Great. <laughs> Off we go. So we go and we start asking questions and we get sent to the book collection and the card file. And sure enough, there's a box, there's a card in the card file when you look up Hoff Sensor back then, different now. And it says, you know, box, props, some, some shit like that. Yeah. So we go, uh, can we see this? Yeah, I have to fill out this little card. <laughs> Okay, so we fill out the card. You know, we just have no idea what the fuck's going to happen. We fill out the card and uh, put it in. And now we're sitting quietly at the table, you know, in the reading room. People are reading. And we're just, what's going to happen? And now a guy comes along. It's like a movie. The guy comes along with a cart. And there's a wooden box on the top, right? Or a cardboard box. And uh, wheels along, stops at a table, takes the box puts on the table, and leaves. <laughs> it's fucking full of half sensor problems. <laughs> it's got... Some of it's in those, in those little custom cases that he made, like you make for a Meerschaum pipe, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some loose cards that are miscellaneous, you know, these fucking handmade... Double facers and shit. <laughs> and there's a complete, his card, any card called for card rise wow. thing. You know what that prop looks like? It's got all yeah. these buttons around it. You know, you, you basically code it, right? The whole fucking. Oh my God, it's amazing. It's like, oh here, you want to play with this? Yeah, sure. <laughs> now they fixed that since she did. Yeah. Can't do that anymore. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we were all like. You believe this? <laughs> That's amazing. I'm. Mm. I always love thinking about how 
you know, I could have a thing over there on the table. And to me, it's like a cute little kitschy accessory to my room. Right. But to someone else, it's the perfect thing that they've been looking for for, you know, the last two decades or something. Well, you know, that's the... Uh, have you ever been to um, to uh, the Gathering for Gardner by any chance? I have not. So the, the funny thing... Uh, I, I haven't been there in years. I used to be a regular. Um... And I did a lot of shows there. I emceed shows, uh, and so on. But uh, the funny thing about um, uh, about the guy, about the G for G is that every talk it's, it was always like you know there were three people in the room. This is back in the days, it was small. <laughs> you know, there were three people in the room who are riveted. Like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. And there's 90 people going, what the fuck is this? Who gives a fuck about that? And then the next guy comes up, and now it's a completely different set of people who are like, oh, this is the shit. And, you know, everybody else is like, oh, what? <laughs> it's the greatest thing ever. <laughs> hmm. ah, all right. All right. So, yes. What are we doing? We're recording. Really? Yeah. We have been recording? Yeah. I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well. <laughs> right? I this is this is all it is. That this was is a start, it. huh? Yeah. How's LA treating you? Great. I'm loving living you like here. like being here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a shame that we, <laughs> we only got to meet that once. I know. Briefly. It's goofy. Uh, are you at the castle much? Do you hang out a lot? Go to lectures. I usually go about once a week. I'm not a member yet. Ah. Um, so my audition is Monday, actually. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I am. Wow. I know. <laughs> the committee. I once. I once. <laughs> so I was sitting with Vernon. Uh, my friend Lou Reed said never to drop names, but I was sitting with Vernon, and uh, John Carney comes up, and he says, Professor. Um, I'd like you to meet this, uh, this young fella. He came all the way from, I think it was Arizona, to uh, audition. And it's a terrible story, but uh, here, I'll show you some stuff. And the kid was a street worker, basically. And he did some lovely coin work, you know, big flourishy coin work, really nice. And, and, and also coin sort of manipulation, flourishes, coin star, you know, all this kind of stuff. And Vern's very complimentary and so on. And uh, Carney says... Uh, he goes, so he, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he came all the way, like I said, I think it was Arizona or someplace like that, Nevada, whatever, Southwest. And he came all the way to uh, audition uh, for the parlor. And he auditioned and he, was do- and he did the cups and balls. And uh, they didn't uh, accept him because they said that the cups and balls was a close-up trick. And uh, he said, well, okay, I'll audition for the close-up room. How about I'll audition for close-up then? And uh, they said, well, you have to come back at another time. (laughs) And Vernon said, the committee? The committee? Who the hell is the committee? Why doesn't somebody audition the committee? (laughs) Which I thought was very well said. So, yes. So write that down. The cups and balls is the close-up trick. <laughs> That's funny. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not worried. So I'll <laughs> say that. <laughs> but yeah, LA's been great. Um, speaking of San Diego, have you been to the rare room at the library in downtown? It's beautiful. I have not actually. I've been to the library, but I have not been to the rare room. It's up on the top. It's like this beautiful modern long room on top of the building. Right. Beautiful views and it's just it's dark and cozy and it's got this beautiful tree essentially that has been oh, made nice. to the table. It's gorgeous. Beautiful room. Uh-huh. Um so I recommend checking any, it out. Any any magic titles? No. No. It's not an expansive rare collection, but okay. it's beautifully showcased and the room right. is just Oh, that sounds lovely. I'll have to I'll have to go. I've been to the library numerous times, but no, I had I had not been up there. That's great. I will look into that. Yeah. Beautiful building. Uh, but yeah, LA's LA's treating me well. I'm driving up to San Francisco tomorrow for, for the Golden Gate Gathering. Golden Gate, which yeah. is um, Malik is doing it, right? Malik's doing it. <laughs> My old friend David and um, Ron Connolly, Alfonso. Oh, Ron! Yes. Oh man. Well, if you think of it, tell Ron I said hi. I will. He's a good. I, I know. He's a great guy. He's a, have you ever been around him? I've never met him. Oh, dude, you're gonna. Are you interested in gambling, cheating, that yes. side of things? You yeah, are? Yeah. Okay, then sit your ass down next to Ron Conley and just screw off the rest of the convention. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Yeah, okay? believe me. You know, in, uh, in, uh, in 40s poker uh, book. Protection, yeah. Yeah, poker protection book. He, he thanks Ron. Okay, and I think he says. I know he has said this publicly. I, I forget if he says it right there or not. Yeah, that he's that Ron Connolly is the guy who knows more than me about this, and that's true. <laughs> yeah, I'm very and excited. I've spent a fair amount of time around Ron. Yeah, and he is he's just the best on so many <laughs> levels, on so many levels, like. Uh, He's a phenomenal storyteller, and he has this great way of speaking. Did you ever meet? Um, do you know who Ward Hall is by any chance? I do not. Yeah, well, he's a he is the oldest, last of the great legendary sideshow impresarios. Okay, and he's a wonderful, wonderful man who I know pretty well, and I've spent a great time, great amount of time with. And uh, I, was, I was introduced to him many years ago by my dear friend Todd Robbins, and. Um, he has just he just has he has about he has as close to a photographic memory as, as a person could have if such a thing existed because he you know he'll say oh yeah it was uh, it was you know it was May of thirty seven it was a Friday the weather was a little cloudy and you know it's like that yeah. it's like that. every story is like that he's not even trying it's just the way he does it and uh, you can listen to him for hours and he has this wonderful Midwest accent well. Ron is a different breed of cat, but he's the same. And, yeah. he, and he remembers everything, and he has a million stories. And they're all, they're not stories that happen to some other guy. They're stories <laughs> that happen to him. And uh, I mean, I, I just wish somebody would write a book. Um, he is, and, and yes, he's insanely knowledgeable. Like, he's great. I mean, I mean, when 40 is saying he's the guy. But uh, so it goes without saying he's insanely knowledgeable, but he's just fabulous to listen to. And some of the stories are hilarious. Some of them are mind boggling. He also has like this awesome collection of um, Eye in, Eye in the Sky footage. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, I'd be surprised if he doesn't bring some with him and do some session with it. Maybe not. Maybe he won't. I don't know. But um, he's I, 
oh god i mean i've seen stuff that he has you know a guy doing the shirt who keeps missing <laughs> and the, and the dealer doesn't notice you know that's just one of a that's one of a thousand examples um He's just the most fabulous guy in the world. He's yeah. just a, a, I'm a huge, and he and Malik are really good friends, uh, as well. <laughs> so they uh, they have come together into my shows just so they can uh, make fun of me, snigger in the back, just so they can snigger <laughs> in the back. Yes, like the couple of assholes they are. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, I'm I'm extremely fond of. Uh, of Ron and I and I know David a very long time I wrote the introduction to his um, 10 card poker deal booklet have you seen that I have not no. <laughs> he's got I know there's a ton of stuff up on the you know it's one of those things like somebody says to you hey I got something on a 10 card poker deal I said call Bob Farmer I'm done <laughs> um, you know I can only have you know 50 versions of my repertoire I think that'll cover me yeah so or maybe one on the other hand so uh, whatever <laughs> But I have to say, you know, I, the reason I wrote the intro, well, the reason I wrote the intro was because Malik asked me, but, um, and I know him a long time, but, um, but I it just so happened it worked out well because I saw him work the close-up room and he did the routine and I, I, I had brought a, a, I brought a woman friend, actor's friend with me and, uh, I was I was crying. It was so funny. It was I was I mean I, I and it was a t- totally different thing. Like I you know he's I know him back when he was just doing straight gambling stuff and one of one of the best run up guys you ever saw in your life. A guy who would just cock his head to the side like this and then do and then say how many hands. Um, but this was a totally different thing, <laughs> and it was hilarious. I mean, it was killing me. And her, you know, I she saw like three or four great shows at the castle that night, and Malik was her favorite, and for good reason. And uh, the routine is really clever. It's not, I mean, he makes it hilarious, but that's his character. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <clears throat> but there's really some really clever stuff in it. It's very cleverly constructed because, among other things. He gets the Jonah in the... He has phases that he... Because of the way it, the presentation is, he has phases where the Jonah is in the spectator's hand. So that's a killer throw-off, right? Mm-hmm. Now you really can't follow because it's not always in one place. Yeah. And then he's got this final phase with these torn, with the cards torn in half. It's really, really, you know, smart. Um, so... Um, <laughs> David, for all his uh, eccentricities, uh, is a very, very good magician. So, anyway, you'll have fun. You'll have fun. But I'm telling you, just attach yourself to Ron. Tell him I said hello. Give him every inch. Give David every inch of my love. And uh, and sit down and shut up. You'll have a and sit down and shut up, right? Because Ron's just the greatest. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean. Grew up in Brooklyn, but how'd you get into magic? What was its role in your youth? It's just like, you know, in the, whenever whenever someone asks me, how'd you get into magic? You know, it's usually the first question. Um, I know, I feel gross asking if it's the first yeah, question. If it's, uh, if it's a male, mm-hmm. 
If it's an American male asking me that question, my answer, and now I'm going to put this here, anybody who hears it, I know they're going to use it, but I'm not actually giving you permission. Uh, uh, I always say, same way you did. And then when their eyes cross a little bit and their, their, their heads cock, like, you know, like when you're talking to a dog and they can't quite make out the words. <laughs> Uh, I say, yeah, sometimes between the ages of 7 and 10, somebody bought you a magic kit or you read a book on Houdini and you fooled around with magic for a few years, didn't you? And 99 times out of 100, really, the guy will go, well, yeah. <laughs> and I say, right. So we started the same way. Mm-hmm. But then you turned 14 or 15 and discovered women or your gender of choice and you moved on and I stayed home and practiced. And I don't know why that is exactly. But the difference between us is is how we, how it ended up, not mm-hmm. how it started. We started the same way. Yeah. In my particular case, and this is a story I've told many, many times, and also recorded in a eventually in a one of my favorite essays in Shattering Illusions, which is um, called Real Secrets. Um, I, my father, I was a extreme, I was an only child, extremely shy, extremely introverted. I've, I've since oh, outgrown, outgrown that face. <laughs> uh, and uh, my parents were always, as, you, as they said in the 50s, you know, trying to introduce me to things to bring me out of myself. That was the phrase back then. So I, you know, music, I played music. So I played music when I was seven and I collected miniatures and I was an avid reader every, you know was that just the thing for things. parents to push stuff on their kid on, a, on shy kid on shy introverted kids right mm-hmm. try to bring them out of themselves so um and i had all i also had all the qualifications to achieve excellence in magic i was a fat four-eyed kid with a speech impediment so you know perfect um and so my father, there was had a. It was actually sort of a. It was actually a distant relationship. A relation. I usually say a family friend, but it was actually a distant relation. I think on my mother's side, who, uh, my dad was together with him one day. I think at the, the guy's office, and the guy did the color vision box for him. And of course, the beauty of the color vision box, you could repeat it a few times, mm-hmm. and that's what the guy did. And my father was fascinated and said, "We're fool the hell out of him." And he said, "Where do you get something like this?" And the guy said gave me the address for Louis Tannins. So my dad went up there, met Louis Tannin, who sold him the trick, taught him the trick. And my dad, um, who maybe had a passing moments interest for himself, but then immediately went to, you know, this might be a great thing for Jamie. So he took my mom and me out to dinner at a Chinese restaurant in Flatbush. And he performed the trick for me he performed it i performed mean really? it. he okay. performed it fooled me yeah and uh he said i'll, I'll teach to you later and then later when we got home far from the prying eyes of other witnesses like my mother he taught me the trick now the genius of this the intuitive genius of this is that as you know when you're first starting a magic and you you constantly go repetitively go through that experience of learning the secret going is that all it is <laughs> right that disappointment that constant disappointment right? yeah and then you have that terror of trying to fool somebody with that yeah 
that's this thing and having confidence. Well, because my dad didn't just break it out and explain it, but rather would perform the trick, it gave me this reference point, this touchstone where he could say, yeah, yeah, but you remember yeah. what, it, what the magic felt like? You remember? And that would help me persevere. Yeah. And so this was the routine that he established for the first couple of years of my interest, which was periodically... I was I was a very diligent kind of worker and creator and practicer and whatever and so he would periodically go to the shop pick up a new trick bring it home teach it to me dial X was another one a little later a little dial mental trick and uh, perform it for me and then teach it to me and I would work on it and in the first couple of years it was like that and and of course then you know magic kits and maybe some very very beginning over the counter books and then by the time I was about 10 Mm -hmm. he started to take me to the shop so that I could learn directly from well from Lou and by the time I was probably 11 I was taking the subway on Saturdays not every week but taking the subway on Saturdays and you know saving up a few bucks of allowance and then taking the subway and hanging out in the store and I was painfully shy and I was in this fabulous milieu and I got to see great magic but I was quiet about it I didn't really talk to anybody when I was young at mm-hmm. all I just watched yeah but I was watching the best in the world I was watching Frank Garcia and Harry Lorraine and then Derek, Derek Dingle and you know holy shit yeah and then a little later going to the governor's cafeteria after on Saturday afternoon mm-hmm. And, uh, Were you close with your parents? Yeah, yeah, I was close with my parents. I was close with close close to my mom until I was about ten, eleven, and things changed. And then, as of about ten or eleven, is when I really got close with my dad. The magic thing was really one of the few connections between my dad when I was younger because he just worked a lot. Okay, he was out of the house working a lot, and um, but I. But I ended up very, very close with my dad. My first book is dedicated to him. And thanks him for giving me a color vision box. Uh, and much more. So, uh, yeah. So it was like that. Yeah. And then when did it get serious, sleight of hand? Um, well, I kind of was all... You know, Lou Tannen taught me uh, first the sponge balls. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Taught it to me properly. Gave me the Audley Walsh book. And, you know. And, uh, and he taught, then he taught me dice stacking, which I think he probably learned from, if you piece the, put the pieces together, Mm -hmm. probably learned from Crandall. I wouldn't be surprised if he learned it directly from Crandall. Okay. uh, Who was the only guy doing it back then and wrote that little manuscript, which I got from Loom. And then taught me the, what I later discovered was the Don Allen chop cup routine. So by the time, and my parents had a little bar in the house, had a little four seat bar because they threw a lot of cocktail parties. Cool. And um, the first time I went to work for Bob Sheets as a magic bartender in 1985, and he said, okay, you got to make one of these mats. You take a board like this, a piece of board, you cut it to here, you put some foam in there, you cut a piece of velvet, you wrap it around the edges and you staple it. And you put a little comedy sign on the bottom that you flash them when you leave so they're not pissed off. And um, 
I looked at that mat, and other than the little comedy sign idea, I went, oh, well, that's the same thing I made for myself when I was 12. Yeah. Because I had this little bar, so my parents would throw a cocktail party, and I would be doing the chop I was 12 years old, 13 years old, fooling the shit out of these people with double big load in the, ch- in the chop cup, and then go, well, I got to go to bed now. You know, it's <laughs> like that, right? And uh, so it's funny the, how that worked out. Um, so he taught me sleight of hand and I got a copy of Royal Road of course and learned you know overhand shuffle and a couple of tricks out of Royal Road but I was not enamored of cards mm-hmm. my feeling then um, naively was oh god you know everybody does card tricks okay foolishness of youth and um, so I you know I, le- I learned uh, well the big my big card trick <laughs> God, I'm thinking back, I haven't thought about this in a long time, and I don't think I've ever written about this publicly. So, uh, this same family friend, I think it was, oh no, it was a different one. A different distant relative on my mother's side, when I was about nine years old, uh, yeah, came to the house one night, and he did like three close-up tricks he was a hobbyist and he and he found out I was interested in magic and he did like three close-up tricks uh, or something like that well let's put it this way he did a few and I remember two and two of them were he did the three shell game first time I ever seen it mm-hmm. and boy was I enamored of those props and all of that holy man uh and he did out, what I later discovered years later was a trick called Out of This World. Jesus. He wasn't fucking around. No. <laughs> and of course, I had no, I was fried beyond fried. I was so fried that, uh, that Out of This World, because I wasn't old enough to go to the store yet. So it was a couple of years. It had to be at least a year before I was even ever at the shop that I could start to ask about any of these things. And I got a little booklet on the shell game when I was pretty young. And the Ralph, the Ralph, uh, it's a huge Ralph, uh, I can picture the cover. Um, And uh, then came the day. And I was, I remember I was uh, in the store by myself. So I had to be at least about 11. So it had to be a couple of years. And that effect of out of this world had just stuck in my brain like it was, it had drilled itself a little hole in my DNA and just sat there. Yeah. And um, I remember walking up to the counter and saying not to Lou, to one of the other demonstrators, a guy who I didn't really like that much, but uh, Copperfield and I laughed about him years, <laughs> years later. Oh yeah. And, and David remembered his name. I forgot his name. But anyway. That's uh, so funny to be like infamous as a bad magic demonstrator to Jamie when, and David. When, when, when Dave and I were, uh, hung out some years ago, he was kind enough to tour me through the collection. And when he, the first time he did, and he picked me up uh, after the show, whatever, we got in the limo. And the first thing out of his mouth was, so you hung out at Tannins about the same time I did. I went, yeah, man, I used to see you there. You know, you were a little kid. And... Um, and we started talking about it and comparing, you know, which who, who which demonstrators we knew and this and that. And this was all because he had bought. He said he actually said to me, he said, "Well, 
I'm going to blow your fucking mind. That's his exact words. He goes, <laughs> I'm going to blow your fucking mind tonight. And we get there. And the reason is, is because he had just gotten a hold of, or or just put him out. Maybe he had just got him. I'm not sure. Um, these, it's a, like a half a dozen of these oversized, they're not eight by 10, they're much bigger, like 12, you know, 12 by 17 or something, photo prints, frame photo prints of magicians. You mm-hmm. know, Tarmel, handful that were always that were up at tenants when we were kids yeah right and there they were hanging there and he afterwards he said you didn't seem to react much to that and i said no no it's just because i was just i'm just blown away i was just i had nothing that to say it was just overwhelming to see it man uh so anyway anyway it's a roundabout way to tell the story but so um <laughs> So anyway, so I work up, but I remember this very vividly, and it was a very powerful lesson too, in a way. So uh, I said, I said to the guy, I mean, it had taken me a couple of years, right? And I've been going to the store for a while before I had the nerve to even mention it. Yeah. And I said, I once saw a trick, and I begin to describe the effect. Mm-hmm. of out of this world and I think I'm going to explain the whole thing but I, of course I get eight words into it and he goes out of this world's a dollar <laughs> I'm like what and he, the guy walks back and, and the guy walks away walks back throws an envelope on the table because it was a single page sheet yeah. right dollar you know <laughs> And I'm like, this can't be. This just can't be. This, this is the greatest miracle. It can't be a dollar. You know, it can't be the same thing. It's got to be the wrong thing. I said, you know what? What happened was he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is it. Okay, so I give him my buck, and now I go. There were these chairs in the back of the store, and I go and I sit down, and I open this envelope and I start to read it. And I get to a certain point, and I read it again. oh god so embarrassing and yet it's such a fabulous lesson and now I walk back up to the to the guy to the counter and I go uh, when the when uh, this is different this is different because uh, when it was done for me you didn't you have to change in the middle on this one you have to change in the middle I didn't change in the middle I just dealt out the whole debt and he goes trust me you had to change in the middle same trick and this is when I learned that lesson wow. of the layman's memory, mm-hmm. right? And the difference between the layman's memory and the actual effect. It was, and, and you know, when I read uh, David Devand, you know, and you produce six oranges and the layman and the audience walks away and says he filled the stage with oranges, right? Mm-hmm. That's the example Devand cites. I went, well, there it is. That was my, when I read that years later from Devand, it was like, well, that was my out of this world experience. So it was a great insight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And interesting about that trick is that in the last um, uh, Werner Herzog, are you a film guy? Yes. Are you a cinema guy? Are you a Herzog fan? Yes. So Herzog, have you seen Queen of the Desert yet? No. So it's it's not, it's not his best work, but... It's interesting. It's an interesting story based on a historical story, very 
in Herzog a kind of way of drawing on history and then making it his own with Nicole Kidman. And there is a scene in the film uh, that is built around out of this world. Really? Yeah. And I had the great pleasure and privilege of spending a long evening with Werner uh, about, I don't know, maybe, maybe two years ago. Uh, where I hosted him at the Magic Castle for the night, and then we had dinner together. It was a very small. Ben Seidman told me about you ben. guys sitting in his show. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I took him in the bench. I kind of curated the night. Took yeah. him to three shows. And the funny thing about Ben's show, when Ben and I didn't actually know each other, we knew who each other were, but mm-hmm. I never had the chance. I knew him by reputation by that time, and we since became friends. But um, I bumped into Doc. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the hallway and I said what's uh, what's Ben Seidman doing in the parlor and he said well actually he's working on this new pickpocketing thing so he's alternating between two acts and his, he's got his regular act that numbers thing and then he's doing this new pickpocketing thing that he's you know kind of working through I said okay I know this sounds weird you know the guy yeah do me a favor go backstage and tell him he has to do the real act and not the new act. Just please tell him I said that, okay? And for good reason, okay? Yeah. I'm bringing somebody in. And uh, it's a weird thing, but all worked out for the best. So I we brought, I brought, we went in there and we got seated early and I was sitting talking to Herzog. Well, I was talking to him for five hours nonstop. What it was one of the greatest conversational nights of my life. And uh, because he is that guy, like I don't know how much you've read about him, but he is that guy. He is so that guy, and he said, and for, and he's very voluble. He's very, you know. I thought I was afraid maybe he'd be stand, a little standoffish or just not very. He's completely voluble. Like he just walked in, shook my hand, and started yapping to me and about magic. And it was like it never was nonstop all night. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, and then from and then and you kind of get used to it and you but then there's moments where just a certain sentences come out of his mouth and it's it's oh it's purely him you know and I told Nicole I told her this is forget that film that you got the Oscar for this is the best work you have ever done in your life I told her <laughs> and people think that's arrogance but it's not it's yeah. absolutely not it's just this self certainty and clarity that he has he has yeah. no sense of irony about anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's breathtaking to talk to him. Yeah, I mean, he's just one of the purest artistic spirits I've ever been around in my life. You ever read his book? No. So, you know, I, I did a, I did a um, you know, Aaron Fisher in the Conjuring community. They yes. do these. Uh, Books you have to read. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. So, of course, leave it to me. I don't know if you saw the one I did. I did not. Well, they send me these, you know, five questions, right? Yeah. And the questions are badly worded. They're vague. They're it's 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 totally pissing me off. You know, what's the best magic book? What, 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 what's wrong with you? What do you mean? You know. And so, of course, what did I do? Instead of you know writing the the hundred and fifty words that most people do, I sent them you know twenty five hundred words, right? And then they decide. So instead of breaking it up the way they normally do, they ran it as a whole thing. Yeah. But for the. <laughs> For the non-magic, they say, what's a non-magic book you would recommend to magicians? Mm -hmm. And I recommend Werner's book because it is so inspiring. It's a book about how to be an artist without any of the pretense. He's completely anti-pretense. He's just a tough, 
tough motherfucker, <laughs> you know, and uh, he is so, uh, you know, he's doing these master, you know, this master class yes, thing that everybody's doing. Ask, yeah. So he's doing one on film. And as soon as I have the time on my schedule, I'm going to buy that thing because I'm not a filmmaker. I'm a great cinema fan but just to listen to him talk about film for a few hours yep 90 bucks you got it of course uh so that's he's top of my list anyway we're sitting there waiting for uh, ben to come out and uh he says uh he says you know i'm, I'm just i'm just finishing my uh, film with the uh, queen of the desert and we have a whole scene that's built around this trick this card trick and it's a trick that my son did for me because his son is a magician and if you've ever seen um uh, uh, Werner's film uh, uh, oh, it's uh, it's tip of my tongue it's like it's called um, it's about Hitler's psychic oh um, yeah in 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 uh, if only there was a device um, so um, it'll come to me so anyway uh, in that film yeah which is a really wonderful film. Um, the, the critics don't love it that, uh, as much as some others of his work, but I'm actually... Invincible. It's called Invincible. Oh, okay. That's right. I just thought of it. And there's a scene when the strongman first shows up at the circus. Not at the circus, but at the theater. Uh, he meets a magician behind the bar. He meets a guy who's the bar... He thinks the bartender is also a magician, and the, guy, and the magician does some split fans, some nice, quick split fans. Well, it's Werner's son. Oh, wow. who is a novelist and a filmmaker and obviously an amateur magician as I learned when I saw Invincible right so Werner says to me he says yes this is a trick where uh, she, he, he's trying to impress this woman and he deals and she hands her the deck and she deals the cards and some are red and then some are black I went oh well it's a classic it's a classic trick I said your, your son must have shown you this right your son's a magician he goes yes yes he goes but there's a moment he says the whole presentation of the trick is that you don't touch the cards right the person the magician never touches the cards and when my son did the trick for me many 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 years ago at the end of it I said but um, but you did touch the cards once, and my son said to me, "You know, you're, Dad, you're the only you're the only person who's ever noticed that." And this is what he builds the scene around. But he but it, but what he's saying to me in his intense Herzogian way um, is he says uh, he says, "But you know, magic is really about you know it's really about sensuality and sexuality and and uh, so this whole scene it's all concentrated into the trick of her him sort of seducing her without ever touching her with the power of the magic trick." And I said, "Well, you're totally right, my friend. It's just you know it's too bad that many magicians are completely unaware of what you're talking about." And uh, so he describes the whole scene to me in detail. It's all about out of this world. And it's in, it's in the Amazing. film. Yeah. Amazing. So we are having this long conversation while we're sitting there. And then Ben comes out, does this awesome show, Fool the Hell Out of Me. Um, and, uh, and, uh, but there's this group, there's this you know, millennial party group all together a bunch of them in the room and you know it's 8 o'clock and they're freaking drunk because they don't know how to drink and or <laughs> behave in public and uh, you know and there's this one couple that's directly behind me and they are just yammering and and the guy is is kind of heckling and whatever and I turn around and I warn the guy like twice and he's so out of it that he won't even you know 
he still just won't get it, right? And yeah. so now these guys are giving Ben a hard way to go. And Ben is in this awful situation because he knows damn well who Werner Herzog is. He's looking right at him, sitting yeah. with me. And uh, and he's walking this fine line because I know in a, you know, Ben's a worker. And in another situation, he would have probably ripped this guy and oh, yeah. gotten some good mileage out of it. But when you're in that situation, you want to be careful because if you make them... You don't want to make the mistake and lose the show, which is always a risk. Yes. Once you go after a guy, there's always that risk, and he doesn't want to do it because. And he handled it actually quite well. He really did, and he did eventually say something, but it was really, uh, it was really skillful and incredibly stressful. And so after the show, I uh, the first thing I did was I I, I ran backstage, I grabbed Ben, and I introduced, I introduced myself very quickly, and then I took him around and introduced him to. Werner and they I left them to have a conversation and then I ran off immediately and found a host and I had the couple thrown out of the building uh, right <laughs> yes uh, so that was that was quite that was quite a fun thing but there you go so there's out of this world how about that <laughs> how about that that's a nice little tale about out of this world that almost is a story worth writing now that I now that I've thought about the connection between my own experience with it and Werner's I think I I think I may need to write something about that. I think it's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, as far as, you know, coming back to Tannins and all of that, and my first real, my next real mentor there after Lou uh, was uh, a, guy, a guy known to everyone as Presto, mm -hmm. uh, whose real name was Earl Johnson. And I just, if you're following any of my take twos at Magicana, mm -hmm. my, the new one that I just posted two days ago is about... Presto. Okay. And there's, I also wrote a long, lengthy cover feature about him for Genie some years ago, which is uh, reprinted in my latest book, Preserving Mystery. And Presto was um, a guy who lived in New York, um, a, uh, a working pro, worked all around the Northeast and elsewhere um, during the heyday of the construction and the Alaska pipeline. He worked up there a lot. He did. He worked at Hubert's Dime Museum. He did fire eating there and magic. He did uh, everything from nightclubs to children's parties. And he was a great, great performer and a great comic performer and a great manipulator. A phenomenal sleight of hand man. Mm -hmm. uh, lit cigarette magic on stage wow. and coin magic up close. He was a phenomenal coin guy. And he's the guy who invented the palm to palm change. Oh, wow. That's his slight. And um, everybody in New York and around the Northeast knew him. And um, he was one of the few, very few black magicians around at the time, besides Frank Brentz and Bill McQueen, William McQueen, uh, who eventually moved to Florida, uh, became a cruise show worker. I think Bill's still among us. And, um, <clears throat> uh, and Presto was just this very sweet, very kind, very generous, warm, a uh, guy who was passionate about magic and unbelievably skillful and extremely well read and um, he uh, he was the one who talked to his kids when nobody else would and so he taught me my first serious coin magic you know he taught me the palm to palm change mm -hmm. probably when I was I don't know 13 or something and insisted that I learn it in both hands and I just you know walked down the streets day after day 
with four coins in my hand, you yeah. know, and if you drop the occasional one down a subway, great, you know, it was 50, 50, you didn't use the good coins for that. And, um, and thank goodness he did, you know. So he was a great influence on me, and I just wrote this, a new long, yet another tribute to him. Um, I did a piece about him in a theater show uh, in 2000 in New York. Because he used to pitch magic in the 42nd Street. There was an arcade in the 42nd Street subway when you got out to go to Tannins. And he used to pitch magic there. And a uh, wonderful story about it. He had taught me uh, a thing that's sometimes called in, uh, Incredigo, I think. Um, it's basically the coin pull, mm -hmm. you know, where you vanish it from a fold of cloth. And uh, that's a pitchman's trick. Um, I didn't know it. He taught it. He just taught it to me, and uh, when I was quite young, and he gave me the real work on it, which was you, when you buy it, it has a clip. But that clip, you have to now cover that with your fingers. But he would take. He used uh, walking liberty halves, mm -hmm. and he would uh, drill a hole near the edge and thread the elastic through that, and then glue it up, and so you could really hold. You had nothing to conceal, right? Just, yeah natural hole and uh, that became a trick that was always on me I was always pinned up my shirt and or my jacket whatever and, you know it was a staple in my repertoire and when I was quite young still maybe 12 or something uh, I was walking through the subway one day and I just knew presto through the magic shop I didn't uh, the Hubert's Museum was too rough for my, <laughs> my, my spoiled Jewish kid from New York, Brooklyn. I didn't know anything about Hubert's Time Museum. And I wish I did, I had, but I didn't. And so uh, all of the later years, Presto would tell me stories about it. Uh, and uh, uh, I heard a familiar voice. You know, I heard a voice in the arcade, and I rounded the corner, and there was Presto in a, in a pitch stall, pitching magic with a crowd around him. It was news to me. And because I just knew him as a magician and as a real magician. I mean, as an amazing magician. First real magician I ever knew, like up close. You know, he was just a wonderful, bigger than life personality to me. And uh, and there he was pitching magic, Sven Galley Dex and the coin go. And I, he knew that I had it on me. And, and uh, somewhere along the line in the... In the at the at, at the at near the end of the pitch, he said, "As simple thing, even this kid can do it. Here, do it, show him, kid." <laughs> and I was that was the most terrifying thing that had ever happened to me in twelve years. I mean, that was terror incarnate. But there it was, man. I was on the spot, and my and all I could think was, he, you know, he didn't needed me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand what the hell was going. So I, my hands shaking, you know, I pulled out the coin and I did it. There you go. Who wants one? You know, and sold a bunch of them. And, you know, it wasn't until countless years later that it occurred to me that that had nothing to do with him pitching a trick. If, if anything, it might have undone his pitch. It was about giving me a moment of confidence that I could do it. It's a profound experience. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of, even though I've written about him before and I've spoken about him before and I've performed about him before, when I uh, went back the other night to write this piece about him, I, you know, I sort of just revisited it again. And the older I get, if anything, the impact of my mentors 
rather than ebbing or diminishing over time, actually grows my gratitude towards those handful of people who guided me along the way uh, is uh, is profound. And there's um, there's only one there's this one film that somebody has of press doing a show in the eighties. And it's terrible quality reproduction, you know, repeated reproductions and whatever. The sound is good. And it's cut into three parts um, on YouTube. And I had resisted doing a take two about it because I thought it was too much to demand of people to... Because take two is, uh, which, is a, which is in the lion's den, L-Y-O-N-S, den at magicana.com. A weekly piece I've been doing all year. I'm up to number 37. Uh... Um, is for its art appreciation for magic, yeah. magic performance, and it's not just for magicians. And it has at least that was the thought when I in my head. I didn't know if it would become a reality, but I actually do have a number of non-magicians that I that are reading it regularly and commenting on it and sending me notes and this and that, which is very nice and very gratifying. And I didn't know if I should impose on such people. It's so hard. It's hard enough to really tr- try and appreciate magic in any recorded form no matter how hard the qual- high of the quality it can't really compete and i one of the things in take two is that every week i say please put down the smartphone expand the bra- the browser to the max turn up the sound and try and invest yourself in this because you'll only get out of it what you put into it which is of course true of live shows which i reminded of rather unpleasant audience last night of as a matter of fact um but i just thought i've been doing this long enough and honoring great magicians not only magicians of the past i've done a number of take twos about contemporary magicians as well and even and young magicians too um but i am honoring great magicians of the past and uh, i thought you know what i'm just going to write about presto and put this out there and put those three pieces out there and and we'll see if people can appreciate it. I don't know yet. It only came out two days ago. I've got some remarks from people who knew Presto and are happy I did it, but we'll see what the others think. Um, although, actually, uh, uh, Neil Gaiman, my friend Neil Gaiman, just uh, re- re- retweeted it, and uh, I think he only does that to the ones that he really likes. So, <laughs> so, so maybe he saw what I was trying to say. But as I was sitting and listening to Presto's voice and... Um, it just caught me up in it and just the, the incredible kindness and generosity. I think um, there are people in the magic world who uh, pretend to honor their, claim to honor, I won't say pretend, that's a little harsh, claim to honor their mentors mm-hmm. and yet sometimes fail to learn the most important lesson that they should have learned. And that their mentors were teaching them not by explicitness, but rather by example, which is to pass it along. Yeah. And uh, I think it's incredibly important and honorable as a knowledgeable, skilled, experienced magician that you lead. <laughs> the people coming up. Yeah. Because, because otherwise you got nothing to say. Exactly. You got nothing to complain about if you don't 
If you yeah, if you don't have a hand in the fight, that's right. You can't complain about where it's going. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's it can be discouraging when you see where the magic world is these days. And you know, I just found out from Denny actually. Denny's doing. Have you seen these live things that Denny is doing? No. (laughs) So. Denny Haney, the greatest magic dealer in America, uh, started doing these Facebook Lives about four weeks ago. Amazing. <laughs> They're like a half hour long. He throws a couple of tricks on the table and he, show, and he shows you, pitches you on some tricks, but he tells stories and he's hilarious. That's amazing. As always. And it's some of its priceless wisdom. It's fantastic. Um... <laughs> it's pretty great and I learned from watching one of them that um, and then I went and checked and he's absolutely right which is that the Vernon books are out of print really? that is correct you cannot right now if you want a copy of the Vernon book of magic yeah. Inner Secrets of Card Magic the uh, Malini book uh, Leipzig Leipzig, Leipzig um, um, yeah all that you have to buy from a used dealer yeah that's appalling yeah that's awful that's how do you become a magician if you don't have easy access to the most important books of the mid 20th century in fact Joan uh, what's her name (laughs) that I mentioned earlier who was uh Joan Sullivan, maybe, who was a librarian, a rare book librarian at the Library of Congress. She once said to me over a meal, I never forgot this, which is because I asked her about you know all this work that she's gone through to rescue these books and all of this. And she said, "An art separated from its past, from its history, isolated from its history, is doomed to extinction." And that's why she thought it was so critically important that magicians have access to these to this literature, right? It's a quite a powerful sentence she said to me thirty years ago. Um, and when I learned this thing, when Denny mentioned this in passing, and then I went and looked to see if that to just confirm. It's just uh, that's shocking. Yeah, it's shocking. And um, I understand the circumstances of why it's happened, but I hope something happens to change that. Um, And so, yeah, sometimes it gets frustrating. But on the other hand, uh, last night, uh, I met a a young man who had been writing me over the Internet. and had introduced himself very graciously and asked, said he was hoping to meet me because we were going to be in L.A. the same week. He was going to be here visiting and hanging out at the castle, and I'm working at the castle this week. And I met this young fellow last night named Ed Kwan, who grew up in Korea. He's been in the States for two years, Uh, and he's 21 years old. And uh, he is uh, an unbelievably talented boy. Unbelievably talented. 
doing beautiful classical magic and having a knowledge of the literature that is incomparable, comparable only to people mostly whom I consider my colleagues, mm-hmm. you know, expert veteran students. And it's just amazing. I, I mean, what he was, things he was aware of, you know. We were discussing Jennings. He mentioned Jennings' visitor. And, you know, he was citing a number of references, all of which I knew, but he was citing a number of references. And I thought, wow, you studied that and you know that. Of course, I did manage to come up with a good one he didn't know, <laughs> which is uh, Howie Schwartzman's night visitor from Epilogue. But um, it was such a pleasure to watch this, to talk to this kid. And uh, we were out till about three thirty in the morning, and um, and to and to watch him work, you know, uh, and doing beautiful classic work, Saigini coin magic, and and the funny thing was was that the first time I saw him, I walked into the castle, and I walked over to the Vernon corner there because there was a little bit of a crowd, and some guests of mine, some friends of mine, were sitting there on the couch engaged watching up close this little performance and it was this kid ed and what trick was he about to begin as i stepped up but triumph sitting under vernon's photo and talking about the professor and doing actually uh, the, the lovely presentation uh which what was your first thought when you walked up and saw he was about to do triumph in that corner uh i was really curious i already knew what uh um, I knew a little bit about him and only in terms of uh, how respectful he had been and a few things he had said to me o- over uh, Messenger. Um, so I was, you know, intrigued. And um, and he did this lovely story using... Um, uh, using Vernon's story of the spectator shuffling the pack, yep. but telling it in a very compelling way and telling it in a way of, in a sort of, you know, Magicana kind of way, what Johnny Thompson calls Magicana, that presentation, where the presentation is historical. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it was beautifully, uh, it was beautifully put across. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, Roberto Giobi in his pyramid theory, he says, you know, knowing the history of magic provides a foundation it, it it informs and deepens and lends power to your performance and that's a ephemeral kind of thing that's difficult to pin down mm-hmm. but it was a perfect example last night yeah because the kid he may only be 21 years old but he is his work is knowledgeably with knowledge laden with decades of great artists and um, it's a different thing it lends a different quality yeah well that kind of uh, interest or that kind of expertise in other areas as well informs your work or it should you shouldn't just be uh, a magic nerd (laughs) oh well this (laughs) Vernon you you know was a perfect example of this I mean 
uh, he would make fun. I, I remember in conversations, Vernon making fun of, you know, magicians, all they know about is magic. They don't know anything about the rest of the world. And one of the, you know, there is this kind of historical revisionism about Vernon that you, I hear from young magicians sometimes or see online of, you know, how he made everything up. It was all lies and, and fables and this and that. Mm-hmm. And um, this, partly this comes from the fact yeah, Vernon was a great storyteller, but it doesn't mean he was making it up. Yeah. And uh, so they're confusing that. But more importantly, I think that comes from the idea that no one can really, not no one, but that people have difficulty believing that the life he led was really a real life because the life he led was phenomenal. And of course, the, the, the perfect example and the proof to, to all this is Carl Johnson's book, The Magician oh, yeah. and the Card Shop, which is an entire book about one incident one little period one year in the in the professor's life he had a whole life of those years and that's just one and a guy a journalist a, a professional journalist who runs this deal story to the ground and confirms every detail the only thing he doesn't find is the actual girl with the ice cream cone but he does look up what the weather was that day and it was warm enough she could have been eating ice cream but other than that he actually confirms essentially every detail he finds the the guy who's in jail right who gives vernon the tip yeah um and uh, it's all there that's all reality yeah so, but Vernon would laugh, and uh, because because Vernon, the interesting one of the interesting things about the Center Deal story is that you know if you think about the Center Deal story and you see those there's photographs in the Johnson book, not of Vernon but of by this photographer of the era who took these secret photographs of the kansas city gambling rooms mm-hmm. right and I actually have a print of one of those on on my wall that was given to me. Uh, very generously by Carl Johnson was given to him by the photographer that Johnson tracked down um, who had this great uh, collection of photographs so if you know the you know the story we all laugh about that sometimes annoyed Charlie actually late in his life where Vernon would say you know the, the I'm the dice man story right yeah. that story which so um, but you know you have to put that in context we, we forget that Charlie was a generation younger than Vernon okay yeah. he was so um but anyway, uh, when you what what that story is really about is Vernon saying, "Listen, I know how to be in this place. Okay, this is not a natural place for you." Which of course it turned out very different for Miller later, but this was in his introduction. Um, and so Vernon was comfortable in though in that milieu. Yeah. But then you look at a picture of him performing in a nightclub table, right? Those table side photos, like the staged oh, okay. ones with yeah, Jeannie, yeah. right? Yeah. And you look at how he's immaculate. breathtaking, immaculate, that's the word. Yeah. How breathtaking he is, right? Yep. You know, and you just know, man, he's there with the swells and he just, just exudes. Yes. 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 Command. The command. The balls to do the cups and balls right at that table, you know, which is what that routine was designed for, was to take it down from the stage and make the misdirection work under those demanding conditions in two and a half minutes, right? There's so much that's revolutionary about the cups and balls routine. And um, when you think about the idea of how cosmopolitan he was 
and how he could move in any circle and speak high and low and shift from one to other in a moment. Mm-hmm. He was a, that's, that's what cosmopolitan means and that's what he was. And he was amused and annoyed by magicians who only knew about magic. That was not him. He could, he could talk to anybody about anything. Yeah. And uh, most of the, you know, I mean, sit and talk to Tom Arise about film. Did you ever see his cinema trick? Oh. It's all about, oh, well, Juan has a wonderful, wonderful trick where he's got all these, uh, uh, it's, it's all this stuff written on the back of the cards and, 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 and he, um, and he, and he talks about, uh, and he talks about movies, talks about movies and, and, and great filmmakers and, and the connections between cinema and magic. Yeah. It's uh, and it's passionate, you know, and and uh, it's great. Or you read, um, um, you know, you read about Tommy Wonder, right? His essay about, you know, if you only appeal to the lowest common denominator, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, or uh, or of course, you know, Roberto's work, right? I mean, these are the greatest magicians tend to be. There are exceptions. Yes. But you know, there there are the savants in the world. Um, you know, my, my dear, my dear friend, one of the greatest magicians I ever knew, Tim Conover, um, was very (laughs) narrowly focused. And I once made a joke to him, uh, just a passing joke in conversation. It was, but it was some kind of pop culture reference, you Mm -hmm. know? And he got, he just drew a blank, right? He just, he just gave me a complete blank stare. And by the way, it's not because he was a stern, serious guy. He was a hilarious guy. He had a phenomenal, phenomenal sense of humor. And I can't think about Tim without thinking about him laughing. I, I, I hear his laugh every time I pretty much and see his dazzling smile every, every time I think about him. And I think about him a lot. And my friend, our mutual friend, Eric Mead, is, you know, writing, has been writing the Conover book for a few years. And we talk about it a lot because I knew Tim pretty well. And, um, but I remember making this joke and just getting a deadpan reaction from Tim. And I went, well, no, it's, and I sort of tried to half explain it. You know, have you heard of such and such, whatever. And he looked at me completely in earnest, completely deadpan and said, I only know about two things, magic and telephones. (laughs) And that's because he used to be in the interconnect telephone business. He used to sell telephones. So he was pretty, <laughs> Tim laser was pretty focused. yeah, laser focused. He was also a genius magician. But it's the exception. Yeah. It's the exception. Um, but generally, excellent magicians are cultured, interesting people. Art, art, excellent artists. Yes. I think excellent artists are, uh, you know, whenever somebody, whenever somebody young, I, I, probably, I doubt anyone's ever taken this advice, but I keep offering it. <laughs> Uh, whenever some young person comes to me and says, you know, I want to be a professional magician or artist, whatever, do you have any advice? And if they're in school, which God knows, there's a few things more useless than a theater degree, but um, uh, I always say if you're in school, I say take science classes. Take as many science classes. Take as little art as possible and take as many science classes as possible. Uh, the only art stuff you want to do is the practical stuff. Work in the theater, learn about lights and, and rigging and stuff like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's good. But other than that, take science classes. Learn how to think. It'll actually help you in your life. Don't just spend your life in the humanities and your brain. Let your brain rot. Um, so, uh, and I, I don't mean that the humanities uh, are uh, without purpose or value. I don't mean that at all. I'm I'm a great 
advocate for consuming the arts, consuming yes. literature, consuming the arts, but the learning, the, critical thinking, and the, learning, but, the yeah, scientific yeah, method. But the, but the but but the humanities have been hijacked by politics in, uh, in the last. Uh, have been hijacked by postmodernism in the yes. last. 35, 40 years, and that's poisonous, and uh, it's anti-thinking, and it's all the people who come out and become anti-vaxxers. Too much money, too much education, and too little, too few brains. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, study science. The Gwyneth science. Paltrow's of the world. Exactly, the Gwyneth Paltrow's of the world. That's a perfect example, thank you. And so, um, uh, yeah, to study science, get a science degree, become an artist. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, to me, I think that's a way to be, live in the world. Yeah. Yeah, so it's important to be an interesting person. I, I I don't remember who the quote is originally attributed to, but I still look for my favorite comedian, and it is, you have to live a life worth commenting on. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. I always say, and I've written, um, if you want to be an interesting magician, uh, first be an interesting person. Yeah. Read the newspaper. I think it was Bill Hicks, actually. Yeah. I think that was something Yeah, Bill it said. sounds like something Hicks yeah. would say. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, because the thing about it is, is that you know, art is a, a means of self-expression. Yes, and you have to have something to express. And the reason you learn your craft, you know, you can learn your craft to an extreme level of skill. It, it doesn't make it particularly artistic. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not one who believes that we can debate uh, what it, whether. You know what is and isn't art, or what whether magic is or isn't art. I think there's. I think most of what's been written about that is complete nonsense, because most of what's written about that tries to base that judgment on quality, mm-hmm. which fails to recognize that all judgment of art is subjective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my definition of art is uh, actually I'm very fond of Teller's definition. Art sa- Teller says art is what you do after. Uh, you've milked the cows. That's beautiful. So basically, anything you do and anything you create that you don't have to create, mm-hmm. right, is art. The stuff you have to create is craft. It can be artistic. You can build an artistic chair. Yeah. But um, if you don't have to, if you don't need it, then it's art. And it doesn't matter whether it's um, Elvis on velvet or dogs playing poker or... Picasso's Guernica, it's all art. Now, we can talk absolutely about whether we think what is good art or bad art. We yes. can absolutely talk about that, and we should talk about that, and we should argue about it vehemently. Yes. But we shouldn't be arguing about whether or not it's art. That's stupid. That's just stupid, because yeah. you don't know. <laughs> you, don't, you think you know, you don't know. Yeah. You're full of shit. Whoever you are telling me what is and isn't art, you're, you don't know. Yeah. Um, so this endless thing about, well, I don't think magic is art because, well, of course magic is art. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Idiots. But is it good art or bad art? Great. Let's talk about that. Is yeah. most of it bad art? Of course most of it's bad art. It's uh, Hamlin's razor. 90, 90% of everything is crap. Uh, and as Max Maven once wrote, you know, after quoting Hamlin and saying, but in magic it might be 99%. Um so uh, let's talk about whether it's good or bad. So the thing about whether it's good or bad is you learn your craft so that you can communicate ideas and a point of view. And art isn't 
intensely constraining, painfully constraining. You know, a painter makes marks on a canvas, a musician makes sound, a dancer moves across the stage, and a magician fools somebody. These are the narrowest definitional constraints. And within these horribly narrow constraints, you need to try and communicate an idea. It's inc incredibly difficult, but it is the constraint that gives you the opportunity to make it interesting, gives you a chance to make it interesting because if you can actually communicate an idea through the terrible constraints of your artistic medium, you can really do something incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can't communicate all any and all ideas through any random art form. Some arts lend themselves to certain ideas greater than others. Jazz is an unbelievably intellectual art form, but you can't communicate the same ideas in jazz that you can in literature. But Penn and Teller demonstrated clearly that there's a lot of ideas you can communicate through magic. Yeah. And the fact that their work is so rich with ideas is why when they first hit in 1985, the entire New York theater press went, well, it's not a magic show, what are you doing? And the, even though it was a magic show, it's yeah. exactly what it was, <clears throat> but it was a magic show unlike they'd ever seen because A, it was, because mostly because it was filled with ideas. It was smart. But also because it was also respectful to the audience's intelligence, which is maybe part and parcel of the same thing. And, um, and Penn and Teller wisely just went along with it and said, oh yeah, it's no, it's not a, no man. We, they never, they were famously constrained by their producers to never use the M word as they put it and instead they just said yeah we're just Penn and Teller and when Penn and, and when they got the the their first um, it wasn't a Tony some award you know and it says I remember seeing it on the on the thing on the shelf and it said you know Penn and Teller for whatever it is they do <laughs> right? amazing yeah it is amazing yeah, yeah. Uh, so the point about it you 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 master craft because it's so hard to communicate an idea through art and so this is why you master craft so that you have a vocabulary through which you can communicate an idea and a point of view. And then you have to have an idea worth expressing. Worth expressing. <laughs> and in order to do that, you probably need to be thinking about the world and more than your double lift, you know? Yeah. Which is not to say if you if you think if you're busy thinking about all the concepts and all the ideas and all the point of view and all the art and you don't do the work on craft, well, you suck. Yeah, you just suck in a different way. Yeah, um, but you'll suck. But you'll be doing art, just lousy art. <laughs> it's not hard. Not hard to understand, I think. Well, not hard to figure out. To me, it's not hard to figure those issues out, but it seems to be incomprehensible the most. Certainly. There's a, a general lack of self-awareness in the magic community and <clears throat> of the magic community itself. It seems like it's gotten worse. Now, I don't know if that's a function of age or... Um, <laughs> because I hate to fall into that trap of, you know... Oh, well, when I was, you know, things were better. I don't believe What's, the world was better. It's the delta. It's the change. You have so much more self-awareness as you age because you have this more experience. That's true. That just the, the difference. Is That's true. That's true. Yeah, well, there's an old German expression I just quoted to a friend of mine the other day. We go, too soon old and too late schmatt. Uh, and that is true. 
But I just think, um, you know, the funny thing is, is that, uh, <laughs> so the Spa- we know Spain is the center of the magic, of the sleight of hand magic world today, creatively speaking. And yes. it has been for 25 years, 30 years, yeah, say so. right, 30 years. Because I was in, I remember being in Barcelona in 1991 and hanging around at the tapas bars late at night off the side alleys behind the uh, the Ramblas and uh, just being amazed. You know, we'd, every new place we'd get, somebody would make a phone call and then all, another bunch of 20-somethings would... Spaniards were coming in. They were all, one was, they were more better read than the next one and getting an argument, opinionated arguments about the literature. And just, it was, it was stunning. That was stunning. And that was 91, mm-hmm. you know. And I met, when did I meet Juan? In the, in the 80s, factors. So, uh, so that was then, and you know now. I mean, I mean that's. I mean, there there are some exceptions in this country. I'm I'm not saying there's none. I'm not saying there's no creativity happening among younger magicians here, but it's not a lot. It seems to be dominated by the commercial internet scene and and you know instant downloads and single tricks are crappy. Well, again, such an important part people of your generation play in leading the way and i I feel that because the generation underneath charlie Mm -hmm. and vernon so that yeah died young well we talked about this right we've had this conversation right because i'm because i've never heard anyone else say it i think you might have heard it from me because i'm i'm still waiting to write this essay but i've been talking about this for some years i believe it's easy to say, many have pointed out, of course, that the reason that the Spanish scene, the Spanish school is the Spanish school is because of these great mentors of Escanio and Tamariz and so on, down from there. And that is unbelievable. That is absolutely true in the environment, that artistic environment that Tamariz created and the fact that the star of the public's face of magic in, in Spain for decades a couple of decades was a phenomenal artist he it wasn't that thing where the famous guy was the the hack hack and the artist was unknown yeah all of that is true but um what ha- what the hell happened in the states right what the hell happened here you know the US was the was this creative center of of sleight of hand close-up magic, card magic, whatever, throughout the 70s and the 80s and, 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 and somewhat beyond. And and um, and partly it had to do with, you know, it, it moved from New York to L.A. when Vernon moved. Um, but, of course, he left his next generation behind him. And in New York, you know, the, the young kids that were hanging around the Balducci gatherings were named... Howie Schwartzman and Ken Krenzel and and uh, and Herb Zaro mm-hmm. um, before before he uh, before he moved it west. But my theory about this that I've been putting forth for some years, and I really have to sit down and write an essay about this, um, is that that next generation uh, in the U.S. that they all died young. Most of them barely made it past sixty, and so Servon 
Jennings, Skinner, and on the East Coast, Dingle, that group of extraordinary masters, if they were sitting on the couch at the castle, or if Dingle was sitting at the cafeteria or the equivalent of the taco shop on Saturdays, um, that would have changed everything here. And I think they cast a generation adrift in a perfect storm at the same time as the marketing explosion of the internet and mm -hmm. everything that that meant, Theory 11 and all of this. And, um, and I think that was a, it's a poisonous perfect storm that set the next American generation adrift without guidance. And there, are, again, of course, there are exceptions. In I mean, it's John Thompson. John Thompson is the great, the greatest mentor we have. Not just my mentor, but the greatest mentor we have. And you know, one of the last few connect, direct connections to Vernon and Charlie, like Bob White. Um, oh, Bob. oh God, he's the fucking best. He's the best. He's the best. <laughs> I, I adore Bob White. I the first time I met him, my my dear friend. I'm very close friends for 25 years or more with um, Norman Beck, and uh, I went down to Dallas to do a lecture years and years ago. And uh, Norman said, "I got a guy you want to meet," and he set up a lunch with the three of us. And I just fell in love with Bob White, the cantankerous, ornery fuck that he is. <laughs> and just one of the greatest sleight of hand men I've ever seen in my life. Just, you know, and I'm not in the habit of recommending videos, but every video that Bob White ever made is the greatest stuff oh, is yeah. awesome. <laughs> and the and the Linking Rings video and the Cups and Balls videos are the greatest videos ever made on those subjects. And with apologies to my friend Levant, but on the on the, on the, it was a toss up on the rings there. But but those videos are breathtaking. They're absolutely breathtaking. And the palming video is one of the funniest, unintentionally funniest videos in the history <laughs> of the world, because the palming video is. Uh, okay, and here's the Hobson's or bottom palm, and it looks something like this. And then nothing happens. And his <laughs> hands just sit there, perfectly frozen, and then he shows you that the cards are now in his palm. And then he goes to the next one, and here's Erdace's bottom palm, uh, version two. And nothing happens. It all looks the same. First, his hands are still, then the, card, then the cards are in his hand. And it all looks the same. It looks like he's doing the same thing 25 times. It's, uh, it's hilarious. If you think about it, it's hilarious. And uh, and he does the, maybe the greatest. We were talking to Ed Kwan about it last night because fortunately he's had the chance to hang out with Bob. I have pictures of Bob and Ed sitting together. Oh, do you really? Oh, that's so awesome. And uh, and uh, and we were talking about it last night. And Bob has he probably Bob probably has the greatest false transfer in the, in the other than Vernon in the history of magic. Like you know, and of course his way of explaining it is well, you just do this, but. <laughs> You know, uh, and then he kind of gives you that thing, like there's something wrong with you if you can't, right? Yeah. He gives you that little extra, like, yeah. you know, are you, are you the slow kid? What? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he gives you that. Uh, and he's just the greatest. And he, after that session, he came to a lecture, a workshop that I did, a workshop actually, and uh, he was extremely complimentary. Um, 
And of course, you know, um, you know, I do a workshop, and what am I talking? Who am I quoting? I'm quoting Vernon and Charlie and Erdnays for three hours, and uh, and Eugene Berger, and um, he just loved all that stuff, and he fell in love with the way that I teach. Um, I've devised a way uh, many years ago because I give lessons. I've been giving private lessons for thirty years, and. Um, I have devised many years ago a way of teaching the top change. I can tell, I can teach anybody that, any, anybody, a beginning magician, a top change in about five minutes. It's a specific approach to how to do it. Call 10 minutes, be safe. Um, and Bob loves that. And every time I see him and I've gone to his workshops, whatever, he always quotes me about that or talks to me about that. And in fact, and uh, Roberto Giobi is fun. And we've taught together. I did those card clinics in the early 2000s. And, um, and, and Roberto always cites that I was the one that pointed out to him that devising methods of instruction, right, is a, is a kind of a creative act. Yeah. And uh, the example that, that, that Roberto cites is this, top, is this same top change thing to the point that he mistakenly taught that my technique in the video he made of the first thing of car college and forgot to credit me he forgot he totally forgot that it wasn't his because it, it for a moment because so it was just, just so integrated it, into yeah. and then he contacted me immediately afterwards immediately days later and went ah, i screwed up <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh and anyway i think they added some chiron or something that credits it oh well whatever but anyway but that was one of the things that kicked off my relationship with uh with bob and we of course we spent a lot of time on the cups of balls together and and in fact, I'm just about, I have a cup of ball video that's about to come out, just putting the finishing touches on it uh, for Vanishing Ink. It's my first really, uh, I guess it's my first commercial magic video other than, that's not a lecture, yeah. you know. I've done two sort of lectures on video, one, one uh, years ago, live in London, and more recently for Penguin. But this is the first sort of single item video I've ever done which is about my cups and balls routine and I say right on the routine you know get Bob White's video I'm not teaching the basics here get Bob White's video get anything by Bob White yeah. <laughs> his uh his it's a matter of style notes yeah oh okay. man the be- well it's the greatest double lift if I've always I, said 100% I have right. always I have long since the moment I learned that double lift I've written about you know I wrote that lengthy lengthy I wrote the longest thing I've written about <laughs> double lifts that's in uh where is that? It's in the second book, right? Uh, Devious Standards and um, Dissertation on a Double Lift. And uh, when I get to Bob's, I say, you know, I think I say, if I had been younger, when I had, and I, if I had learned Bob's Double Lift, if I had come across it when I was younger, it would just be the Double Lift I did. Yeah. Um, now I only, because I came to it late, uh, it's, it's not my core Double Lift, but I do use it for, you know what I use it for is I use it for Vernon's fingerprint trick. It is oh, it's perfect. perfect. It is perfect for Vernon's fingerprint. It solves the whole unload thing and so on. Um, and uh, but that yeah, a double lift is uh, killer because it's there's nothing performative about it at all. It's like you're doing it for yourself. You're not doing it for the spectator. It's so great. He's he's awesome. He's just awesome. <laughs> well, anyway, he's one of those guys that yeah 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 that, exactly exactly exactly. So he's one of the last again of the direct connection to Vernon Charlie and them. And uh, but I think it's the absence of that generation. 
that really left the American magic scene adrift. And again, there are some exceptions, but um, there's always going to be some exceptions. There's, you know, I've been saying that Derek Delgadio is the finest magician of his generation since he was, a, I've been saying that for probably a decade. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Ossie Wynn qualifies as such and he's not American born, but he's been here for a long time. And he's, yeah. um, I think Ossie is wonderful. Well, that's another thing we talked about is, is magic is an art. Who are the fine artists of... Well, those are the first two that I would say of the younger, of a somewhat younger generation. They're not kids. They're, they've been around long enough to be somewhat accomplished, but they're also still both developing as artists. They're both early 30s, I guess. And I've known them both since they were quite young. And um, I would, I would uh, you know, Derek, for that, for that generation, I would, I would say Derek and Ossie are the guys. Yeah. Um, and then younger, I'm not sure. I don't get out to that many conventions these days. I don't, I don't, I don't go to, I haven't been to Fectors in a long time. Um, so I, I know they're out there and I do see, uh, I see things online from time to time that are of interest. You know, I'm always concerned. The problem is, the really good ones are not the ones that are going to be putting out product. If you're putting out product that young, you know, that um, that in, inevitably will distort your work mm-hmm. in ways that the person will not be aware of it and will not see it, will not understand it. But I have known young, talented magicians throughout my life who... Uh, got seduced into by the magic marketplace early and got out there doing lectures and product early and they are legitimately talented but it skews your sense of taste it skews uh, it distorts your idea about what's good magic audiences will do that magician audiences will do that Mm -hmm. and that's unfortunate when it happens among talented people uh, and it's a commonplace when it happens among less talented people and the marketplace is filled with uh, young people putting out product who uh, don't know anything yet so uh, and it's not that uh, you know that's not a general slam it always you know it sounds like somebody's going to say it's a general slam against young people I'll never forget when I wrote different read um, this is the one essay I wrote for our, for um, uh, that journal uh, Antimony um, the one essay I wrote for Antimony that's online that I put online at the time because it was so timely which is called In Search of Street Magic it's an 8,000 word essay about street magic you ever read, read that? It, no. oh you ought to read it I think you would find it interesting I will um, and it was uh, right in the thick of uh, you know Blaine and Theory 11 and uh, just all of that and um 
you know, and the birth of the of the downloadable magic video that's shot in the empty lot with the music and the sexy girls, because that's what you have in empty lots somewhere. And um, now I just sound like Denny, which is which is fine because I quoted I quote Denny extensively in the piece, and in that piece. Um, while I take a, I, be, I take apart a lot of what was what's going what was going on and what is still going on and that who's that idiot Christian who owns uh, Bread Christian and uh, he had put out a video about the classic pass. It was appalling. It was absolutely appalling. But the ad wasn't that motivated the piece. What motivated the piece was, was that was part of the piece. But now I'm thinking back about it. The thing that motivated the piece was somebody showed me this trick, pointed me to a video. It was a demo video of a trick called, I think it was called Rainmaker. You ever hear this? No, no, no. Nobody did because it would, you know, it was 300 bucks or something and it, and it flew by. It left skid marks in the marketplace, you know. Although it also left, left, left some bloody anuses for the handful of, of poor bastards that bought it. Uh, and it, the idea was that you executed a, uh, you performed a ritual, and then it rains. And basically what it was was an automated squirt gun strapped to your back. So, uh, it's true, I'm not making this up. <laughs> I, I'm only the reporter. This this transcends taste and yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, have you seen the new thing? It's a card stab on a drone. Have you uh, seen this? No. <laughs> this is the new bit. You should get one. Do it in the parlor. Yeah. It's a big fucking drone, and you shoot the cards up, and it stabs on the. It's the dumbest fucking thing in the whole world, Jamie. Yeah. Next to the Rainmaker. So exactly. Continue. So the Rainmaker, and the funny thing is, is that the fancy demo in the parking lot with the music and all that, the reaction of the audience is kind of like, it's not, the, the marketing stuff was like, and you will, people will be profoundly moved and, you know, this, and then the, and then the crowd is like, somebody, somebody piss on me. And, uh, well, I've, Bought one. I got one. Amazing. I got one because it was so. I saw the video and it was like, I want to see this thing. You know, I just, I just like fuel my fire. <laughs> Your hate fire. Exactly. <laughs> and so I got one. I don't remember. How, I had not bought it. I guess, or maybe I borrowed one from somebody. I don't remember. Uh, I got one. I think a friendly wholesaler might have loaned me one. Now, oh, yeah. that I, now I remember who shall remain nameless. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that's what happened. Now I think about it. And uh, what a, I mean, it was, it was just, just a steaming turd in a box. And so I just sat down and just, I'd had it. <laughs> And I wrote this screed, but, but my point about this actually is that after tearing apart the whole notion of street magic, as it, what, I, what I did was I basically tried to pose the question, is, is so-called street magic, not busking, yeah. so, but the term as hijacked by Blaine et al., um, 
is street magic actually a, a thing? Is it a real thing in the world? Is there such a thing mm-hmm. as street magic? And my premise then and now is that there isn't. Is that street magic is purely, entirely, 100% a marketing label. And that at the time I wrote, I believe I said there were five actual street magicians in the world. And I gave the list, which was David Blaine, Cyril, Mm -hmm. uh, Darren, uh, I forget if I counted Chris and that or not at the time. Marco, actually Marco Tempest, who I was working with and who didn't do much here, but did a lot in Asia, Japan bunch of TV specials and I said and you know when you, you say Chris who are you talking about uh, uh, Angel, Angel oh okay anyway <laughs> anyway uh, so uh, and I said and it's easy to tell who's the real street magician because he's being followed around by a camera crew and if he doesn't have a camera crew he's not a real street magician okay yeah because at best, he's some person accosting strangers on the street yep. who probably don't want to be accosted. Yep. That's not what buskers do. Yes. Buskers offer a show and build a crowd, yes. build an audience. They, prevent, they create a theater, they create a venue, and the audience comes to them. Yes. So no, he, they're not annoying anybody. Okay, but if you're interrupting people on the street, then yeah. you're not a street magician. You're just a passing annoyance uh, with few social skills. So, um, but having said all that, in the first part of the piece, I then, and this is what everybody seemed to miss, even How though could they? even though it's a few thousand words <laughs> present for those who care to read, I said, but you know. <laughs> This is not an attack on young magicians. The young magicians, or if anything, are victims because magic has always sold a dream. Mm -hmm. And the marketing dream has changed. And when I was a kid and I paged through the Tannins catalog for countless hundreds of hours, over and over and over again. The thing that caught me up was those honey illustrations of the nightclub magician, right? The guy in the tuxedo with a cigarette holder, right? Uh, You know, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to be—the nightclub magician—and that was the dream in my head. The pick that was the post-production in my head when I was going and spending my two bucks across the counter, hard-earned. Yeah. And so, and that didn't exist. I wasn't real, and a lot of the stuff I bought was crap. You know. So have things and really that, changed? Exactly. That's my point. That was my point. Yeah. And my point was that you don't blame the consumer for this. Um, and that now we had just changed from the nightclub magician to the quote unquote street magician. Mm-hmm. Both are fantasies. Both are marketing labels. You know? And now the fantasy was 
to be the guy in the parking lot making a young girl scream on the street, just like we saw in the Blaine specials, mm-hmm. right? So I don't blame the consumers for that. When I talk about these changes, um, I'm not really blaming the consumers. I think, by and large, they are victims. Um, the thing what the internet did was it created this third class. There were always two classes. There were always two magics. There were always the duffer hobbyists, you know, who, you know, the most sophisticated of which, you know, knew was a thumb tip was, right? You know, and then there was the Cognigenti, which is not about professionals or amateurs. Some of the greatest magicians in the history have been amateurs and some of the worst have been professionals. Yeah. So let's call it the Cognigenti, right? The insiders. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a very small group, very, very small. Uh, and the hobbyist group was always bigger. It wasn't huge, but it was much bigger. Yeah. But then the internet turned that hobby group into a real income stream. Okay, that, that idiot, Brad Christian, is a millionaire selling crap. And pretty cards. The pretty cards is a different thing. The cardistry thing, that's a, that's a, that's a thing that, that was an offshoot, which is an interesting side thing. But, um, but what happened was this middle class of the, I don't know, let's call it the advanced amateur, mm-hmm. a friend of mine dubbed it. And the advanced amateur got easy access to all these secrets so fast that my generation, of course, and maybe one more behind me, had to fight, had to earn. You had to learn to ask. Yeah. You had to learn to ask. You couldn't just say, show me that. Yeah. And just get slapped. But more often what you got from your mentors and teachers was, well, show me what you're working on, kid. Oh, well, okay. Let me help you with that. Let me show you something else instead of what you asked me about. This kind of thing, you know. And uh, now you didn't have to do that anymore. You just went straight to the information on the internet. Just put a couple of bucks in through PayPal and get a download and uh, you got a secret. And so what it did was it created this, among other things, it created this churn in the marketplace. That easy access in the, as of around the 80s or so, the first, as the first easy to master, so-called easy to master stuff, the most poisonous title in the history of magic production. Um, as soon as that happened, you know, we read the book, good book, so you don't have to. Uh, then people kind of skimmed. And it was very confusing to, to my peers. I kind of got hip to it pretty fairly quick. I was confused at the first, but because I produced Monday Night Magic and I saw a lot of magic, I, I kind of got hip to it a little quicker. But many of my generation have never understood this. Uh, exactly, because now you'd meet some kid who was popping through these slides. You go, "Holy moly, this kid must have worked!" I know what it took for me to get that. And then you dig a little deeper. You hang out with them a little longer than the one session, and you find out oh, they don't know anything about magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't know anything because nobody teaches theory on a video. That's the problem. You got to read books. You got to go find our magic. You got to get your flight time. And you got to get flight time of actually doing this stuff. So it created this huge middle class of the advanced amateur who knows a lot of slights and can do them pretty well, but very often doesn't know any thinking behind it, doesn't know much about conjuring. I mean, look at AGT. 
America's Got Talent. Look what look what wins there. Now, not in every case. There's there are some exceptions. Uh, um, Eric Diddleman did pretty well on HET, and Eric is a talented guy. But you know, sponge balls and rhyming pattern. Hello. Cartoon. Cartoon. And judges who don't know anything about anything. No. That's the beauty of Fool Us, you know. That's the great thing about Fool Us. Is that, um, and in fact, Penn just did a great interview somewhere. It's online. Where he really talked about uh, their thinking behind Fool Us. It's really good. I forget where this was. I just read this a couple weeks ago. And he said, or, or maybe it's Teller talking about it, and I think about it, or both of them, I forget. It was a really interesting thing. And uh, it was like, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do that, we're not going to talk about your future in the business, we're not going to, we're going to make this simple little measure. And I think the same thing that I'm doing with Take Two is kind of what Penn and Teller are doing with Fool Us, which is they're sort of doing instruction in art appreciation for magic, is what they're really doing. It's not about fooling them. It's yeah. It's not about fooling them to us, but to lay people. I understand the argument. Yeah. And the argument was stated by no one better than Penn and Teller themselves in the closing piece to their first hit show, the piece called Ten and One, where Penn says, "We don't want you to think about how we're doing it. We want you to think about why." There's the argument against fool us, as stated by Penn Jillette. However, that's, and I understand that argument, and I'm sympathetic to it. Yes, if you want to make a case that um, Fool Us somewhat distorts that and makes Lehman think that magic is all about being, you know, whether you're being fooled, yes, that is a distortion. But the reality, the reality of the show, when you compare it side by side with AGT. Oh, I'm okay. not doing that. Right. But you have to do that, right? If you're looking at what's out there about magic on TV and what sure, magic people are being exposed to, right? Yeah. And so um, if you look at that, I think, and we don't love all the magic that's on Fool Us either. And there are cases where, because you know, maybe they get fooled by things that don't necessarily fool you and I. Or There's all of that stuff. Sure, yeah. Sure. But in the end, what is really happening there mostly is that Penn and Teller are talking about the same thing that they talk about in Penn's documentary that he produced, uh, uh, The Aristocrats, right? The, mm-hmm. whole method, the whole message of The Aristocrats is, it's never the song, it's always the singer. Yes. The message of Foolish is, is that magic is an interpretive art, it's the great American songbook, it's all about what you bring to it, that's what sets performers apart, that's why you want to watch more than two magicians in your life, mm-hmm. right? And think about it. And it's Penn saying great things about magicians Absolutely. and magic. Yes. Right? The, bad, the former bad boys of magic are now the articulators and masters of magic. Mm-hmm. And I think compared to anything else that we see of magic on TV, other than Blaine's work, which is kind of in a class by itself. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think it's. I think the good far outweighs whatever. There are there are moments I wince. There are moments that I think in his coding, you know, about method and stuff that I think he tells says too much and goes too far. I understand what his thinking is. He talks about it in this interview that I read recently, where he says, you know, I'm I'm giving them keyword searches so that they can go on a path and maybe that interests them. And I'm I'm down with that in general. Yeah. In some of the specifics, I don't always love it, but okay, fine. You know, I'm. 
I'm not in charge. I get to I get to just look at the, the aggregate whole. whole. Yeah. And the aggregate whole is that in every episode, there's pretty much there's been for three seasons, there's been at least one, and very often more, but at least one terrific performance of magic, beautifully shot, and Penn saying great things about what makes it good. Yep. There's never been anything about that to the public in the history of the world. Yeah. And compared to AGT, yeah, no. Which I, should be totally. burned to the ground, drowned, dragged through traffic, drawn and quartered, tarred and feathered, whatever. Um, I just think it's, in the end, it's unarguably a benefit. And I get laymen coming to me and going, oh, you know, I DVR Penn and Teller, I watch that show fool us all the time. Like, I'm amazed yeah. at how many laymen comment to me. That's the thing they comment to me. I mean, I've gone through a lifetime of having laymen comment to me on, you know, going back to Henning and Copperfield. How do you make that plane disappear? Uh, all that. I go back, you know, I have that institutional memory, artistic memory. And today, what I hear about um, is uh, more than Blaine. Yeah. Is uh, is foolish. Layman talking to me about fools. I mean, look at Shivlin, man. What's he, he was just on again, yeah. right? And he's got the most, what, 30 35, million? Yeah. 30, 30 million views, yeah. man. Uh, you know, okay. Yeah. You know, and it's 30 million views. It's not, you know, rhyming batter and sponge balls. It's some, it's some stuff. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah, I'm for it. Yeah, absolutely. I am too. It's just, uh, it sucks that it has to be this competition between the acts. But this is, well, of course, it, all it, artistic competition sucks. Yes. All artistic That's all I'm saying. competition sucks. That's and believe me, I don't think anyone believes that more than Penn and Teller. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> they are, and that's one of the things, you know, and their way of dealing with it is ve- is really narrowing the claim mm-hmm. in the moment and not enlarging it. Not any of the pretense of what AGT pretends to be about. Yeah. You know, Simon Cowell is going to show you, me how to be a great artist. Yeah. Fuck you raw without lube, asshole. Um, so, uh, I, I yeah, I, I don't think they're saying anything about that. No, I don't I, think know. so either. And of course, I you think know, just- and don't forget, artistic competition has a long history oh, yeah. in classical music. But you know what the difference is between classical music competitions and magic competitions traditionally, historically? What? Classical music competitions are judged by professionals. <laughs> there you go. I rest my case. And that's one of my... I think we also talked about this. It's just that, you know, our job as magicians who care about this art and craft, we have to educate the public. Because, unfortunately, they will see far more bad magic than they will. Right. But, first of all, all good art is inherently educational. Yes. Stephen Cronenberg said... And others have said it in various ways as well. Cronenberg said, the craftsman gives the audience what they want. The artist gives the audience what they need and don't know. Yeah. Didn't know they needed, right? So all good art is an act of education. Every breakthrough artist, you know, the, the, the earliest impressionists, uh, Picasso's cubism, 
Penn and Teller on a, on stage. It's all these are all educational experiences for the audience. You have to show them. Um, but it doesn't mean you have to be explicit about it. No, of course not. And when I first first became friends, so I was you know closely sort of associated with Penn and Teller for many years. I haven't worked with them directly now in many years, but um, at one time you know I was a writer and designer for them on uh, Sin City, the special the uh, series in ninety eight ninety nine, and so on. And um, when I first met those guys. And, for, and then first started to become friends with them. Uh, and this is in the days when they were the bad boys of magic and magicians hated them. Magicians hated them because they told the people, they told the public that magicians hated them and then magicians bit on the bait. Um, and this was about the cups and balls. And you would not, it's hard to believe now if you weren't around then, how much vitriol. I mean, I was closely associated with them very early on. Mm-hmm. By, 80, by 87 or so, 88. And man, I'd walk into magic shops. I had guys accost me. Oh, you like those Penn and Teller guys? Really? I mean, strangers come up to me. I mean, it was hot in those days. Wow. Oh, yeah, man. And uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, and when they did, the, you know, when they did the clear cups and balls, in the early days, part of that routine, Penn would talk about a guy who accosted them, you know, who came up to them and threatened them and that. And that was a real story. That that was <laughs> that was Ricky Dunn, a pickpocket. And uh, so uh, it was it was hot. And I early in my friendship with Penn, I, I said to him one day, um, and in those days we we you know we didn't have email yet, so we were on the phone all the time. And I said, uh, all right, let me ask you a question. Uh, so do you, do you set out to piss off magicians? How do you feel about all this, you know, heat and all this that you get, whatever? And I'll never, I'll never forget this. I've, first words out of his mouth in response, first sentence was, all right, well, look, first of all, nobody likes to be called an asshole. How about that? Yeah. Because the public, because audiences create mythical, imaginative creatures out of personalities, right? They do it out of celebrities, but they do it, you know, they do it for me. In the 18 years I was reviewing books, I mean, a lot of people dealt with me who didn't know me, never met me. Um, but because of the controversies over the column, you know, they created this fictional character of a guy who, I don't know, wakes up every morning and says, okay, who can I piss off today? Yeah. And that was, it's not what drove me. What drove me to write the column was the fact, was my love of magic books. And anybody who doesn't understand that wasn't paying attention. And the lack of criticism in literature. Yes, and the lack of quality criticism in the literature. There was no real literary criticism in, in magic Review. It was reviewing. It was consumer advocacy. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Nobody had ever seen a twenty-five hundred word book review in the magic world until my first two columns in nineteen ninety-four or whatever it was. Um, 
you know, in the first month, nobody knew that you could write 2,500 words about a book you liked. And the second month, they all found out because nobody knew you could write 2,500 words about a book you didn't like. And all the hate mail that came in was all about that. How could you? Because <laughs> whatever. So, um, so he said, well, first, nobody has to be, an, nobody, likes, wants, nobody likes being called an asshole. But... We do the art. We're not responsible to the magic world. We're not responsible to the history of magic. We're not responsible for upholding magic. And we're responsible for doing the work, the best work we could do. What we see is, as as art as we see it should be made. Yeah. And the rest, where the chips fall, where they may. And I think there's something to be said for that. Because the best thing you can do to promote magic is to do good magic. Yes. That's the antidote to bad magic. And it's also, by the way, the antidote to exposure. Because exposure is just a, a word, another word that means bad magic. Good yeah. magicians don't need to randomly expose. And, of course, Penn and Teller have never done that. They're not actually exposers at all. We don't even need to get into that. But... You know, but when you have to put a mask on to get a gig as a magician and then explain the tricks, maybe you just suck as a magician, okay? We have some evidence there. Confluence and causality may be related. So, um, so, and as far as this thing about people seeing bad magic, I don't think that no art has ever been victimized by bad examples of itself with the possible exception of mime. And I don't say that as a joke. I think mime was unfortunately actually done in. Because I, I, I knew great mimes in the heyday of mime. Really great mimes. Uh, there was a small troupe out of Boston in the 80s called the Pocket Mime Theater. A couple of friends of mine were in. It was absolutely spectacular. You can't imagine the range of material uh, that could be addressed, that they addressed in the form. But it was destroyed by bad imitations of Marcel Marcel. Um, but every art has always had bad examples. There's always been crappy art. There's always been crappy singing and crappy painting. And that doesn't nobody that doesn't destroy, right? Yeah. You know. Um, so I think that. The, you but know, are are you saying it does in magic? We've been. Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I, I don't really think so. I think um, magic. I, you know, Hanlon's razor. Ninety percent of everything is crap, and Max's addition. It might it might be more true in magic. Um, I just think that the problem with magic, and I wrote this in the first essay I ever wrote about magic, which is called "Magic Sucks," uh, which is that magicians' vision of what qual- constitutes good magic is has has long been too narrow. It's been treated as a variety art. I mean, it is a variety art, but it's been treated as a variety art where the where the definition is mistaken as the goal, as the end goal. So, as I was saying before about expression and art versus craft, fooling people is the craft of magic, not really the art of magic. And magicians think, have thought, long thought, that fooling people is the end goal of magic and it's not it's actually just a tool now what do you do with it that, that makes it really good art and of course nobody exemplifies that greater than Penn and Teller their stuff is full of of ideas and of point of view that's what people crave out of any live performance if you think about it, if you ask any layman who's your favorite stand-up comic who's your favorite singer who's your favorite band 
and they tell you and you say and describe the what you like about it describe what their point of view is in a single sentence they can always do it and they can also do it for actors in some cases which is a little odd but that's um i don't need to get into that but uh so it's what people want from live performance is point of view and the problem with so much magic is that not that either that the person has no point of view um and in and in very many cases is the culture of magic has cultivated a set of artistic values that says that too much point of view is anathema you should be i was told when i was young i I read it and heard it constantly you should be pleasing to everybody don't offend anybody well you know the worst thing an artist can experience is indifference right you know the thing you get every night at the castle from when they're wearing the the guys wearing the gold pins on their lapels um and uh i'd rather be you know passionately loved by 98 percent of my audience and vehemently hated by two percent or even five percent than sort of pleasantly liked by a hundred percent screw yeah. that screw that who cares about that well who cares about that is probably 90 percent of working magicians who just want to go along and be pleasant yeah you know because you know max maven said magicians are afraid of magic and max has been a dear friend of mine for many i don't know 35 years or more and um when he first said it i didn't i didn't understand i didn't understand it fully i might have thought i understood it but i didn't fully um eventually i got around to understanding it and the thing about it is is that the best magic is deeply provocative magic is potentially an incredibly provocative art this is one of the things that Penn and Teller really push in their work it's also potentially a deeply ironic art and they were the almost almost not quite but among the first to ever really exploit that there were a few others before Roy Benson is a good example um but magicians avoid that provocation Mm. and they avoid it by disemboweling their own work right in front of the audience you know Making fun of magic, that, you know, that ironic distance, that ironic distance of it. Ooh, ah. I had a conversation with a host at the castle, a really good conversation with a really good host. So I'm not criticizing anyone here. But he had fallen into a thing with one audience, something that happened in the introduction, and they kind of did a ooh, ah thing. And then he picked up and encouraged it. And I said to him, you know, the problem with that is, is that they're doing that as an ironic distance. And it doesn't actually, it feels like it's connecting them with the show. It's actually disconnecting them. And it's putting them in that safe place where they can point and make fun at a distance instead of actually being engaged. Because nobody who sees art they really care about, like a film or whatever, sits and goes, ah, that's, that's not real. Yeah. So don't encourage that. And, but we had a great conversation about it. He totally understood what yeah, I was yeah. saying. No, you're speaking to my soul right and, now. Um, so, but really good art, you know, I mean, Tom Arie's is uncompromised. He's uncompromising. Well, all the best magicians I've ever known, Tommy Wonder, you know, just fierce. Tommy was fierce. That's the, the word, you know, off stage. You talk to Tommy about magic. I knew him really well. He's one of the greatest magicians in the history of the world, much less in my lifetime. And Tommy was fierce and uncompromising and just wanted to, you know, 
burn the audience into the ground, you know, and he's charming as a performer and delightful. You see how gentle and sweet he is. But man, underneath that, he is the Terminator. He is built of steel. And the thing about it is, Juan is the same way. But Juan sees it, he is so, such a loving, glorious personality that Juan does it with heart. Mm-hmm. And Juan believes, and correctly so, that he's giving them a gift, that his uncompromising approach to method and so on is actually a, is a, a genuine gift to his audience. Yeah. Um, and that's absolutely true, because when you make a mistake or you do something weak, you're actually disappointing them and bringing them down, and, and they'll go with you, but, you know. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so when Max said, you know, magicians are afraid of magic, uh, he was right. Magicians run away from magic with bad jokes and ironic distance and, you know, and, you know, the They're mo- afraid of the vulnerability. Yeah, and the moment you do, you know, a sucker trick, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm now going to teach you how this works. Okay, well, no human being past the age of nine in the history of the world ever believed the magician's sentence. I'm going to teach you this. So they know you're full of it. And uh, they know there's no conviction to what you're saying. This is the thing. Presentation is not noise from the mouth. Yeah. But more often than not, it becomes noise from the mouth because there's no there there. There's no genuine point of view. And point of view is what audiences care about and if they sense that you have a point of view then they will think about um then they will think about whether they agree with that point of view so they may not share the point of view they may decide "Ah, i don't like that yeah but they won't even bother to try and decide if they detect that there is no point of view, which is what happens 90% of the time in magic. There is no point of view. It's just noise from the mouth. Just saying things. I mean, just so much nonsense that comes out of magicians' mouths that um, they don't mean anything. The words don't mean anything. So why should they listen? And then they're stuck. And then they're left to just think about the method, by the way. Yeah. Because that's all you've given them to think about. Whereas in a really great magic show, they should be so filled with experience. That's what happens in the Tom Marie show. They're so filled up with the shock of the impenetrable magic miracles, but also the richness of the of the personality, of the presence of him, and of the whole overall experience. Who wants to think about method? It hurts to try and think about that. Eh, there's got to be a better way. Yeah, you know. Uh, and one of the great theoreticians who talks about this, all this stuff, by the way, is Whit Hayden. Have you had him on yet? Yeah. Good. Because uh, I think Whit is one of our great theoreticians. I mean, he's a hell of a good magician, too. But I think as a theoretician, uh, he's uh, a very smart guy. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Und- underappreciated in some ways. How do you feel? You feel good? Mm-hmm. Um, we hit on most things. I wanted to talk a little bit about Monday Night Magic and just kind of how that got started. Yeah, Monday Night Magic, we are now in our 20th season. We are the longest-running off-Broadway show in New York. Not just magic show, the longest-running off-Broadway show. Granted, one night a week, but still, it's a pretty tough theater market there. It's Not many others have done it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of putting a 
putting a uh, quality magic show in front of the public every week. That is an act of education. Yep. And um, I always, whenever I was there, and for many years I was there every week until mm-hmm. I moved to San Diego, um, <clears throat> I would always run to the lobby after the show and sort of, you know, greet people on their exit, right? Thanks yeah. for coming. And it was always very satisfying to me as a producer to just see the, fa- the look on these faces and of people just had a great experience. That's yeah. that's 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 what we do there. And it came about because um, you know in the seventies and early eighties we had the Magic Townhouse in New York City, and then we had mostly ma- Imams of Mostly Magic, and the two overlapped for a time. The Magic Townhouse was run by Dorothy Dietrich and Dick Brooks. They now run the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> and. Um, Imam had been a performer there and then went out and opened his own place. Uh, And then when Mostly Magic finally closed, which was about 94, I think, or 95, somewhere in there, um, where I worked as a regular performer once I moved back from D.C. in 92, uh, then uh, there was no regular home for magic in New York. I produced some shows around town in the village for a while, but... That was about all. And then uh, a guy named Michael Chout, who was an insurance salesman turned magician, uh, uh, started thought there should be a place. And he started to put together a little show that he was doing once a month. He did a couple of them with some friends of his. And he really didn't know anything about theater or whatever. He didn't know what he was doing, but he, uh, thought it, but he had a good purpose in mind. And then he, uh, I think the first guy he looked up for some help was he called my longtime friend, uh, dear friend and associate, Peter Samuelson. And the reason he called Peter Samuelson was not really that he knew him, but he'd heard something about Peter and the word theater. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty much what it came down to. And so he called Peter. And Peter said, yeah, I might be able to help you, but only so much. But, you know, the guy you probably want to call is Jamie and uh, and because uh, I had been I was back in New York at that point after having been at the end of Magic for Bob Sheets where I was a feature performer but also I kind of ran the bar and whatever and PR and, and I had a business background I came out of the business world before I became a professional magician I never did a paid show until I was 29 I had two other careers so um, so anyway, so he called me up and we uh, met and he still talks about this. We, he just referenced it to me very, just a couple of weeks ago when we crossed the 20th anniversary. And uh, he, we met in Bryant Park, across the street from where decades before Tannins had been at the world as a building. And um, he told me about this. And I had been involved in various kinds of magic projects and magic shows and magic venues and whatever. And and I'd seen a lot of stuff I didn't like. And uh, I said, well, you know, I'd be interested in building a great magic show, but you have to decide first and foremost, do you want to do a great magic show or do you want to be nice to your friends? If you want to be nice to your friends, that's fine. I'm not interested. I'm only interested in making an uncompromisingly good magic show. And the two do not go together. And he said, yeah, yeah, good magic show. 
And uh, so I came in and I went and I saw his next show, which mostly sucked. Uh, everything was wrong. And among other things, I remember saying to him, uh, okay, so for starters, you need an MC. Well, we have an MC. No, you have an MC who's a magician and a good guy, but doesn't know anything about MCing. MCing is actually a skill. And, uh, well, I don't know. What do you mean? And he was very, he was totally, as pretty much every conversation has ever gone with us, uh, he uh, never believes anything I say until it's, you know, proven. He doesn't know the fire is hot until he puts his hand in it. And so, uh, but eventually. So, um, so then I said, well, let me call a friend of mine. And I called Todd Robbins, who I had met in my like first headline show, that uh, weekend headline show. I, when, I, when I started working at Imams at Mostly Magic, I worked behind the bar on Wednesday nights. But then, uh, and then I would close the, the theater show that night, the close-up theater show. There was a formal close-up show that night on Wednesday nights. But then every couple of months, I would headline for the, two or three nights of the weekend shows. That's kind of how it worked. And so some months down the road, I headlined for, for in the stage show, and the guy who opened for me broke a brick a block over his, a masonite brick over his head, and I went, I got to talk to this guy. And uh, I loved his act. I absolutely loved it. He was so great, clean-cut, well-spoken, funny, and then he's doing this weird stuff. I went, oh, this guy's a genius. And I sat down next to him. I'm going to diverge and tell this story so because a lot of people know who Todd is now. So, uh, I, I, so we sat down after the show. I went, man, I, that's awesome what you do. Where, where, where do you live? And he said, 45th and 9th, which is Hell's Kitchen. And I said, I live at 45th and 9th. And I was, there was something about his demeanor <laughs> he's sort of inherently because he's like permanently ironic Todd right <laughs> and uh, uh, and so there was something about his demeanor that I just sure that he was gaslighting me right to the point that I got pissed off and I walked away from him <laughs> and uh, and then a couple weeks later about three weeks later right I'm in the little corner you know Korean grocery right on every corner in New York City right late at night one night and all of a sudden there's Todd and I went wait you do live here and he went yeah I live over there across the street it was right across the street where I live <laughs> so funny and so we became best of friends and we uh, he was single in those days and we hung out we did a lot of drinking together a lot of hanging out together he was working on his act in those days really developing the side it was early in the sideshow stuff for him we became very very good friends so in those days and in those days I was not I really was not uh, did not have chops as an MC yet so uh, but I knew what the hell an MC was and so I said hey this guy came to me and I don't know because Todd now skip ahead it's five years late it's no uh, 97 yeah it's like four or five years later so Todd and I were really good pals so uh, we're kind of living our careers together picking up each other's mail when we're on the road all that so um, so uh, I said this guy I don't know called Peter Peter gave my number but maybe you know we could make our own show after all the crappy stuff we've seen and all that you know why don't you come in and MC a show I need to show this guy what the hell an MC is okay fine so now we do the next show and Todd comes in and MCs and of course Michael says oh 
<laughs> oh, that's what an MC does. I see. So, okay, so Todd and I talk about it. We say, all right, let's throw in with this guy. So now there it is. It's the four of us plus Frank Brentz, the great American, America's black magician who was billed at us in the 70s. Did a card, did a dove, dove, fabulous, amazing, famous, legendary dove act that ended with the duck production, multiple duck production, split fans, and also talk magic, travel all over the world, top cruise ships, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful guy, and had been a mentor to Michael Chow. Um, and uh, so he was our fifth uh, partner and producer and our sort of senior advisor, mentor, kind of in-house mentor kind of guy, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> One of my favorite stories about Frank is in the early days, in the early years, when it was really hard to get the show going and we really had to think about what we were doing and work it out and whatever. And we had these regular meetings every couple of weeks and once a month at the least. We would have these board meetings where we were reviewing acts and trying to work on the format of the show and endless meetings. And uh, I remember we were looking at somebody's act once and talking about somebody, whether to book them or not. And... Uh, um, and we went around the table. And Frank, who was the kind of guy who only spoke when he really had something to say. So, you know, then you listened. Frank had something to say because you go through the whole meeting and maybe had one thing to say. And uh, he said, whatever the act's name was, John Doe. And he said, John Doe doesn't have an act. John Doe does shows. Okay, not booking him. Thanks, Frank. Uh, <laughs> and there's a lot of wisdom in that. If you think about oh, that, yeah. that was deep. That was all of us. Down. We all sat back in the chairs, going, huh. <laughs> you know, hmm, okay, thanks. yeah, got it. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so anyway, that's how it all started, and it was. Uh, painful and difficult it was hard as hell to get acts in the early days because everybody was like oh you're not paying, you're paying nothing and making money on me well we weren't making any damn money Jesus Christ we got insurance we got a real show we got insurance we got house staff we got backstage staff we forgot, who can make money and uh and it also started, you know, we had lofty ideas like, you know, well, an open mic, we should give chance to young up and coming acts. And so the way I, we did it was we uh, I thought mixing that together was disastrous uh, because people have choices in New York. And so what we did was we did like the first show of every month was a cheaper ticket mm -hmm. and it was all up and comers, basically an open mic. But we'd throw in one ringer to close and have a good MC. I love it. Which was Todd. And we did that for six months to prove to ourselves for an unnecessary additional three months that that wasn't working. <laughs> People were not interested. Because in New York, there's just too many choices, and they yeah. want quality. If they, They'll pay money and come out, but they want a quality show. Yeah. So for, eventually, we did away with that. And then Todd and I began to split the MC responsibilities. And we were, for many years, it was Todd and me, we just alternated every week as MCs. And that's how I learned to be, that's how I learned to be an MC. Um, and uh, anyway, that's how it, that's how it started. And um, in the years that I was there, uh, you know, to me, I, I was very interested in creating, trying to create an artistic culture around the show. And if you read the New Yorker profile by Adam Gottman, he starts with that. He starts with 
the after show gathering mm-hmm. and uh, that we did every week. And, um, and I was kind of at the core of that in some ways in terms of finding the right environment for it and setting that up and, and really making that a real part of the experience for the performers and for young performers, young up and coming magicians who were our ushers and things mm-hmm. like that. And, and a lot of guys, you know, we have a bunch of veteran, you know, of guys now, you know, people like Harrison Carroll and uh, not Harrison Carroll, Harrison uh, Greenbaum. Uh, Greenbaum, sorry. Harrison Greenbaum. And, I saw him in February. Oh, did you? And I met. Yeah. And I'm sure he crazy. killed. Right? Yeah. Was he emceeing or headlining? headlining. He, does, he does both for us. Headlining. headlining. Oh, he's killer. Yeah. And, uh, and Ben Nemser, who's a full-time he's performer and doing very well these days, a handful of guys like that, um, came up as they were ushers in our show. And I really believed in that. And uh, I knew that would change when I left town, not because there aren't some other great artists involved with the show, like Todd Robbins and Peter Samuelson, but they're they're not always there. They're busy. It's later in our lives. We're busier yeah. traveling. And their personalities are a little different than mine also. You know, it's kind of what I do. So um, that was a very satisfying part of it to me also. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's It's still even after 20 years, maybe even more so after 20 years, it's easy for us to fill the middle spot, um, which is like 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes, talk magic. Yeah. Um, and occasionally variety acts like jugglers. Um, and although not easy, we've been successful in bringing up uh, MCs. Oh, David, uh, David. Um, oh, now this is terrible. He just got a new, he just wrote a new book, co-wrote it. This book is just out. Um, uh, Ricky Instagram last week. Pictures of three books. Remember that? Yeah. Was it uh, was Michael mine? Feldman? Michael Feldman. What yeah, I keep yeah. saying, David, I'm an idiot. Yeah, yeah. Mike Feldman. Yeah, he's uh, one of my best friends. Oh, well, Mike, Michael came up as a, as a, as a, as a Monday Night Magic guy, you yeah. know? Um, and so uh, David Casero is who I was trying to think oh, okay. of, right? Also, who, who has been one of our steady MCs, one of the guys we brought in when I left town. And we brought in a few young guys to MC, Dennis Criacos, who is now in San Francisco. Um, and uh, so, uh, and we're still, you know, we're still bringing up Noah Levine as a regular close up guy and recently, and a, and a long time. Uh, uh, a friend of mine and um and he just recently he's been doing close-up for us for a while and he just recently did his first uh, stage spot for us awesome. just recently did an opening spot yeah just recently and of course he's got a great show going to tan and show have yeah. you seen it after it's hours great. yeah it's pretty great uh so uh this is all from monday night magic and that's a very satisfying thing for, for us and yeah. for me um and uh, um, you know, I'm I'm proud of that. But it is still it's easiest to fill the middle spot. It's always been easiest to fill the middle spot. Hardest to fill the opening spot. Harder harder still to fill the headline spot because the headline spot somebody has to. If you know, it's a variety show. It changes every week. If somebody, you know, didn't like the show, didn't like the acts. We got a, still a fighting chance with a headliner who's doing 45 minutes, 50 minutes yeah. to bring it home. Yeah. And that's very demanding. It's very, 50 minutes is a lot different than 25. And uh, we've always, it's, it's, we're picky. We are picky about that because that's carrying our show. 
Uh, and close, and the opening act, um, it's just amazing that nobody does, nobody wants to do silent magic anymore. And I, I don't fully understand that because it's not that it's not employable. It's especially, it's not, it's not that employable in the U.S., but it's employable internationally and employable internationally because you're not talking. Yeah. And yet it's nobody, almost nobody is doing split fans or bird acts or whatever. It's, it's quite remarkable to me that that niche is, uh, you know, unfilled. The, the only really interesting, the most interesting work coming out of there is, you know, the young Koreans who are doing manipulation. But they're right now, they're more doing contest acts. So, um, so that's always a little challenging, but we're always looking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there it is. We're, we're, I think we did something good. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, again, I saw it. In it's a lot harder than it looks, and the, <laughs> and the numbers of shows that have cropped up around the country who've tried to duplicate it and fail kind of shows you how hard it is. Yeah. But the other thing is, we also opened the door for a lot of shows that open around the country. I think and saw it as a model and have recreated, not exactly, but have, have used it as inspiration. Used it as inspiration, and I think that's a great thing. And we've always been encouraging to those generally, except maybe the ones that try to little too much to pirate our acts or especially who can't think of a name other than you know wednesday night magic we wish they wouldn't do that yeah um it's nothing genius about monday night magic it seemed like a good idea at the time but um now having established that brand if you do tuesday night magic you're not you know there are other words in the dictionary so we we try and talk people out of that sometimes successfully sometimes not yeah but other than that, we certainly encourage it. Well, great. How do you feel? Feel good? I'm good. Awesome. Uh, well, what's next? For? For you. For me. Yeah. What's next for me? Well, I'm just, you know, in the process in the last year, of, you know, I'm sort of in the finishing mode. And I, you know, put out my third book, uh, Preserving Mystery, through Vanishing Inc., who also very kindly... Um, uh, reissued my first two books, Shattering Illusions and Preserving Mystery, that had, uh, sorry, Shattering Illusions and uh, Devious, Devious Standards, Standards, which had previously been published by Hermetic Press. And it's all in matching editions, the matching set. And I'm really pleased to have these books out. Uh, these are not bestsellers. These are, you know, I've written three collections of essays. <laughs> virtually no tricks. There's a few tricks in the third book, not mine. Um, uh, so I'm very pleased about that and I'm doing some other things with Vanishing Inc. now as I mentioned I've got this Cups of Balls video coming out and I have another one coming out after that about the card on ceiling and we'll see that's my first forays they've talked me into doing uh, these things and I'm, that's not I don't mean to say by that I'm not taking responsibility I am but I'm trying to put out something things that I really believe in that I really are valid, that are not for the sake of product, yeah. but that really have value and things I really care about and things I care about so much that it's almost worrisome in the case of the Cups and Bowls is a routine that I've been doing for 30 odd years and it's very dear to my heart and tipped to, tip to, to very few people. And... Um, uh, and we'll see. I have no idea. You know, it, it could end up being something that very few people buy, but the ones who do, 
you know, might appreciate it and get a lot out of it. Or it might, uh, it might appeal to a larger audience because it's, it's interesting and, and I believe it's very substantive. It's my version of the, of the Vernon routine. Um, so we'll see. And the card on ceiling one is uh, three methods. Uh, my own, which I, which has been buried in print for many, many years, but I happen to actually think is very good. One of the better things I've come up with. And, uh, and then the methods of two good friends of mine, J.C. Wagner and Scotty York, both using the thumbtack approach, which is almost forgotten today, but is actually, I think, superior to the wax <clears throat> approach uh, in many ways. And both those guys were good friends of mine, and I, I like the idea of me trying to keep their name alive a little bit and showing people a little taste of their work so that they'll maybe go out and pursue more about their work elsewhere that's available. Um, so I believe in those two products, uh, products, and we'll see what happens with all that. And then uh, I am at last finishing up the Johnny Thompson book, which has been I've been writing for 13 years. And, uh, yeah, with not, ex- <laughs> not exactly what we expected, but, um, life, as John Lennon said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And uh, so it took a little longer than we expected, but it's a mammoth work. I think it's close to in the range of 200,000 words. Wow. It'll be two volumes being produced, uh, published by Magicana. And it should be out by the end of the year. And uh, I will be very pleased to see it. Johnny Thompson is one of my dearest friends in and out of magic. He's certainly one of the greatest, if not the greatest magician I've ever known. He's also one of the greatest human beings I've ever known. It's like he and Pam are kind of second family to me and have been for many years. I love them dearly. And uh, it's a great... It's a scary kind of responsibility to uh, be responsible to put to put down the record of uh, the work of someone uh, who is that important in the world of magic and who is that important to you personally. Yeah, and that is why many years ago I kept saying no. <laughs> every time he asked me and uh, then finally one time I said yes we both had some time free in that summer and I went to Vegas and I basically and I lived with Pam and John for about a month and we started on the book and we did during that month we did a lot of the first really really big ambitious pieces like the egg bag and the Nemo wallet and the um, and the bird chapter. And, uh, and I really like doing that big stuff. That, because I've been, I understood that I've been taught the theory and so much of it by John for so many years. I learned so much from John. I didn't really meet John until, I'd seen him work, but I never really met him until I was well into my 30s. I'd already been a pro for some years, full-time pro. And it was a whole new, I wasn't, I didn't think I needed, I thought I was done with mentors. I was very wrong. I found a new mentor, the latest in a long, in a, the last in a long line. And I learned a lot from him. 
because he really because he brought to life for me. Vernon was a profound influence on me, but it was at a distance. It was through the literature. By the time I met Vernon, got to know him, which I fortunately did in the last few years of his life. But at that point, it really wasn't about magic anymore, very much, <clears throat> a little. But morally, it was hanging out with him and and being. And, you know, becoming a kind of a friend and and learning about his personality, which was great. Soaking up the essence. Soaking up the essence, a good way of putting it. Yeah. And what it, you know, Mike Skinner said to me once that uh, he said, you know, I learned a lot about magic. I'm paraphrasing. He said, I learned a lot about magic from the professor, but what I really learned from him that was most important was about life, about how to live, about how to live. And, uh, that was something coming from Michael, who was one of the greatest artists I ever knew. And, um, and, and so I got to see that being around Vernon those last few years, just hanging out with him, just going out to breakfast after the castle closed and hearing stories and, <laughs> and, uh, I just thought it wouldn't made me laugh. But anyway, um, <laughs> and, uh. So anyway, so that was great. But John was the one who like put paid to it, you know, like, uh, you know, he changed my mind about something about triumph, for example. Uh, and just and that was one of the first things that he but but I just I just learned so much from him. And um, so it's a big responsibility to do that damn book. <laughs> And uh, and of course, as the years have gone on, I got to constantly hear from people. You know, it'd be good if it was finished before you know while he's still here to see it. Gee, thanks. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> thanks uh, for your consideration. Yeah, thanks for Kindly your input. Kindly fuck off. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thanks for your input. Couldn't do that. Uh, so I'm very. I'll be very glad to see it. I'm actually going to see some pages, uh, some page proofs at Magic Live in about a week, and I'll be very happy to. Uh, when that's finally behind us and John gets to see it and John gets to enjoy it and have it in his hands and sign a few copies for people. Um, um, and it's been a wonderful collaboration working with him on it over the years. I mean, he is just, he's, I can't, he's a genius. And I don't use the word lightly. He really is a genius. Uh, and uh, he's a treasure, just a treasure. And, you know, when you see Penn and Teller, you know, they just recently debuted doing the Thompsonian Company Act. Yeah. They're doing the act. Yeah, yeah. And Penn at Magic Live, they're debuting this little documentary <clears throat> made by my friend Emery Emery about who made, uh, about, um, about the gambler, about the ballad. Yeah. Uh, I saw. Of John, of, of a Penn doing the ballad, the gambler's ballad with John as a duo. I saw it. I saw you it saw it live? Together. Where did you see it? Brooklyn. You saw it at Brooklyn? Because I yeah. think they did it three times. I think that was the last time. I think time they, they did, did it, it twice at Magic Line, and then they did it at Brooklyn, and that's right. it. And when you. It was so moving. Yes. When you look at these two things, the gambler, Penn doing the gambler, and Penn doing the ballad, and, and them doing the act, the Thompsonian act, yeah. It's very provocative to really sit and think about that. Because it's a different kind of expression of mentorship. It's not uh, the kind of mentorship that Vernon and Charlie gave to John. It's different because here they are recreating something. 
Mm-hmm. That's different. They're not just reinterpreting. They are recreating. And that's very odd, especially for two artists who have been committedly and explicitly yeah. original. Yeah. Exactly. Never did a word of someone else's, you know. Yeah. And... Um, that is really says something about the impact that this guy has had on those guys. Yeah, you know, it's really an expression of love, and it's and it's expression of art and continuity. It's a phenomenal thing, really phenomenal thing. And so my piece of that is to do this book, and my my name will always be on that, and always is connected with him. And it's probably the first and last book I'm ever going to write of somebody else's material. God knows. I don't want to do it. I don't, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I've had others come to me. No, I just can't. I don't know how Steve Minch does it. Writing those damn card tricks. Just, uh... Anyway, so that's something else I'm finishing. And, uh... After that, I don't... I'm not, I'm not exactly... I'm, of course, I'm writing for Magicana. Which I love. Thank you. And I'm writing weekly the take two piece, which I'm I'm going to do a year of those and then either just stop or at at very least if they want to continue it, I don't know if they will, but if they want to continue it, then I might do it like once a month because once a month I'm also doing a long thing like a book review. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to do that again. But just do material I choose to do. You know, I have complete control over and just do 3,000 words about one book or something. Yeah. And all that started because, all of that started because I read Lovick's book, Handsome Jack book, and it just blew my mind. It was just the greatest thing that I'd read in years. And I, you know, and I'm sitting there reading this book and laughing out loud late at night, just laughing out loud. The book is brilliant. And I just felt like I finished the book. I went, oh, I got to write something about it. I want to write something about this. But I, of course, I'd stopped doing the genie column some years ago um, uh, because of the unfortunate little man who publishes it. And um, so uh, uh, I just I called David and said, hey, do you, I don't know. Do you have a blog or something up there? Would you, do you want a single review? Just a one piece. I'd just like to write something about this book. He went, yeah, sure. And uh, so I wrote it, and I had this funny, what I thought was a funny idea that made me laugh, which was to take the book's premise at face value. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> and, and write the review, uh, basically saying, well, Handsome Jack, everybody knows who Handsome Jack is, this guy's a genius. I don't know who this jerk Lovick is, it keeps with all these footnotes and stuff, it's really annoying. Yeah. But nevertheless, the book, Handsome Jack, and that's the way I write right. the whole review. Right? Beautiful. Because <laughs> it made me laugh. Yeah, yeah. The book made me laugh. Then the idea of writing the review that way made me laugh. And then I thought I'd make Lovick laugh by writing it that way, which I did. And that was all I cared about. I didn't care really about anything else. <laughs> Maybe somebody else will read it, write it, read it, read the review and like it and buy the book, which is always how I wrote the review. I wrote it for myself and my three friends, and then the rest of the world could listen in or not. Yeah. And uh, so... I wrote that, and me, and basically one thing led to another, and they said, hey, you want to do a monthly thing? Yeah. And that was just the monthly review, and I, like an idiot, came up with the take two idea, because I thought it'd be an interesting thing to do, and I committed to that completely on my own, 
and now I have a weekly deadline, which is idiotic. <laughs> uh, and it's just, it's relentless, it's absolutely relentless, and I can't wait till it's done. But the feedback from it has been really nice, and I, I'm very satisfied, it's very satisfying to see that work. It's just a chance for me to show my appreciation of great artists, both yes. living and dead. And uh, I, li- I like doing that. I like, I like uh, the negative reviews that I was always renowned for were never more than about 10% of the column. That's yeah. the ones people talk about and the ones people remember. But that's, I only wrote the negative reviews because bad books piss me off. Uh, just like bad magic pisses me off. But, um, but uh, really, I wrote the column to promote good magic books. And now I get to just write about magic as an art and about great performers and why, what makes them great. And uh, that's that's really fun to do. Yeah. So uh, that's it. What's after that? I have, I don't know. I'm not sure. We'll All see. Right. <laughs> well, we we end with uh, the guest telling your favorite story about either like the hardest time you were ever fooled, like kicked in the head, totally brain rattled, fooled, or just your favorite magic moment that you've ever experienced. Um. Wow. Kicked in the head, fried. Let me think for a moment. I mean, I can think of many fabulous, magical. You know, I have to. I mean, I, I'm, I have the pleasure and the privilege and the 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 good fortune of being able to say I have many such experiences, many such experiences. Um. But one that I've been thinking about recently, partly because I did a take two, partly because we've just been talking here about my friend Tommy Wonder. Uh, You're going to say the cups and balls? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, man. And the thing about it is, and I've told this story before and I've put it in print before. But I first saw this guy named Yos Bema at the 1978 SAM convention. Uh, at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City, which was a phenomenal convention. It's the, it's the first time I saw Penn and Teller, but they were Asparagus Valley Cultural Society. Uh, it was the first time I saw uh, a, a lot of great magic. Pat Page. So first time I met Vernon. The first time I, the only time I saw Vernon lecture. It's a pretty rich conference. So the close-up was that you know those big convention close-up things. At least the seating was good. The eye, eye, the eye lines were good. Um, and uh, Yo Spamer, ladies and gentlemen, and the guy comes out and he's looking at his clock. Oh, I have to do my trip. I have to do my hobby. And um, he did three tricks basically, three routines. He did wild card. And then he did the coin routine. It's kind of a combination coin box, coins across coin box. It's got the beat of the coin in the eye that he first published in Pabular, as memory serves. Uh, and this was his first trip to the States. He was up in Buffalo for Fectors, I think, just before this, or just after. And then he did the Cups of Balls. And I have a very distinct sense memory, just like I could describe to you what it was like the first time I saw Slidini. Um, I have this distinct memory of the voice in my head when the bag came out of the cup. 
Um, and we all rose as one in a standing ovation. And I remember saying to myself, a voice in my head said, well, I don't know who the hell this guy is, but I know I just saw one of the world's greatest magicians. Like it was just unequivocal. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was unequivocal. It was breathtaking. I was rocked to my core. I also love misdirective effects. You know, the card on the glass, one of my favorite tricks. And, uh, you know, and I grew up watching Goshman, you know, as a hero. And, uh, <laughs> and I didn't, uh, get, I didn't meet, I didn't meet him that trip. I only, I didn't get to meet him for a few more years till he was Tommy Wonder. And fortunately, um, we became very good friends. I knew him very, very well. We spent a lot of time together at magic conventions over our years and outside magic conventions too. And I even fooled him once or twice, but, um, not as many times as he fooled me. Uh... And it was wonderful to know him. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, I just, it was no clue, man. It was no clue. That was a, that was an 18-wheeler. That was waking up after a nap and seeing the 18-wheeler 18 inches from your nose about to run over you with all 18 wheels. <laughs> I, I, vividly remember the first time I saw the LNL video of him performing it because I, I wasn't around. Yeah. yeah. I, I wasn't around to see yeah, him do no. it. I can't even begin. And to see, I think about this all the time. I, I It really hurts me. I am so sad. Really, I, it's tragic that so many magicians not only will only see it on video, obviously, will never see it live again. Yeah. But so many come to it knowing what's going to happen and miss the experience of being fooled by it. And that is tragic. Or watching it on their freaking phone or something. And it's like that thing in my mantra in take two, expand the browser, turn up the sound, put down the smartphone, watch it from beginning to end. Like no one's ever going to have the real experience yeah. that I had with that. Yeah. No one. I can't even imagine what it was like, but I do know that when I saw that video for the first time, <laughs> I, it was the closest experience. It's one of the most powerful experiences of being fried right. that I've ever had. Right. And I've seen a lot of really great magicians yeah. do a lot of really yeah. great stuff. But I saw the video of that trick and it fried me. That's great. I'm glad to know that. That yeah. actually, that's actually comforting to know. Yeah. Um, because yeah, the genius of it, the sheer genius of it. That, that actually his version of it is what got me into wanting to do the cups and balls. Oh, is that right? I never learned his you version. Never learned I his never version. made the problem. Right. I mean, I read it. Yeah, and yeah, I, I understand. It, I understand. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as uh, every, every major, every important, interesting, professional version of the cups and balls in the 20th century, in the, in the latter half of the 20th century, pretty much without exception, is based on the Vernon routine with the sole exception of Tommy's. Yeah. And Tommy's routine is sui generis. It is completely unto itself, and almost no one does it, you know. And for good reason. It's it's so odd and eccentric, and it's very much part of you know, it. Yeah. Is hard to, it would be hard to make it your own. I think it could be done. I, yeah. I, I absolutely think it could be done. Um, but um, I've yet to see 
anyone really do it. And, uh, and you know, of course, that the source of its invention was purely pragmatic. You know that, right? No. Okay, so I, I think he explains some of this in the book, I forget. But he didn't say, I think I have a really good idea. Wouldn't it be great if the pom-pom and then the bag came out of the cups, man? That would be killer. Yeah. That's not what happened at all. Yeah, yeah. And this is from a guy who wrote the defining essay about the costs of pragmatism, right? Mm-hmm. And yet... Here's what happened. He was working in this club where he was working tables. And he wanted to do the cups of balls. But he, he, was, a, he, was, he was a slender guy who yeah. dressed very stylishly, you know. There's no place to put the loads. Yeah. So how are you going to do it? I do remember this, yeah. And, you know, room on the table, which is why Williamson developed the two-cup routines, because he was working restaurants. He was yeah. actually working dinner theater tables before the show in the 80s in D.C. So he takes basically takes the Werner routine and cuts it down to two cups. It's fabulous, and he won the gold cups, and deservedly so, but still, that's it, it comes from the Werner yeah. routine. Well, Tommy's faced with the same problem, two cups. Where, where, where do I put the loads? One thing led to another. So Pragmatism. Yeah. But... Pragmatism plus genius equals high art. And, uh, you know, Ossie has the case. Do you know that? Ossie Wind, mm-hmm. the family, the brother, put the Tommy's close-up case up for auction. Oh, wow. About a year ago, a year and a half ago. I didn't. Yeah, maybe I even two years. About it. Yeah. 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 And, uh... And Ossie called me and said, uh, what do you think about this? You think I should go for this? What do you think it's going to go for? And I gave him a number. I said, I think it'll be here. I think the max will be here. I think if you really want it, you need to do this. Unless DC gets involved. If DC gets involved, then it's all bets are off. But yeah. if he doesn't get involved and he's not, he doesn't focus on close-up, then I think this... And I was sitting in my car, man, watching the numbers. Watching the numbers. And then it goes, and I immediately called him up. And I said, you got, you got it, right? And he goes, no, I put it at the... I said, I, what? I told you? And he went, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a beautiful thing, because Ossie is not a collector. Mm-hmm. His home is not filled with uh, magic stuff other than books. Uh, And he didn't know Tommy, but he knows what a great artist he was. And so uh, it's in the perfect hands. It's in a working pro's hands who is a great artist doing honor to a predecessor, much as Houdini did, to clean up grave sites and things like that. And it's on his shelf. And uh, first time I was at his apartment afterwards, you know, I mean, we just unpacked the whole thing on the table. And it's just a... 
And it's, you know, it saddens me, obviously. Tommy was taken from us very young, and he had so much more work to do, you know. Mm. I miss Billy McComb every day. One of the, there's only really, there's hardly any big, any, there's four magic posters maybe in my house, but I see Billy every day at my dining room, a big Vernon thing and a big Billy thing. And I miss Billy every day, and I was a very dear friend of mine, very close. But thank goodness, at least, Billy had a full run, you know. But the last time I talked to Tommy, which was only weeks before he died, and he knew, mm-hmm. and we had a long phone conversation, and part of that conversation was about what was going on. A part of that conversation was him telling me about the latest trick he was working on and what he'd come up on it. And that's what he was doing in the hospital. And he would have been doing a lot more, man. He would have been doing a lot more. It's like Hendrix. It's like that. Yep. But he was a great artist, and I was lucky to know. Um, and yeah, when that bag came out of that cup, my head exploded. I'll never forget it. Incredible. Yep. Well, thank you so much. This My pleasure. Was wonderful. Thank you for having me. You're finally one of the guests on yeah. the stupidly long podcast. Yes, the stupidly long podcast. To. Well, not nobody. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, people listen to it. I'll rarely, if ever, get through a whole one. I just haven't got that kind of time. I mean, even Mark Marin keeps it to about an hour and a half. Well, he's got other shit going on. I, this is all. Oh, I, I don't listen to the first fifteen minutes. Oh, oh yeah. No, I'm, I'm. Does anybody listen to the first fifteen minutes of Mark Maron? No, I don't. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm pleased to be a part of the pantheon. So, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Magical Thinking and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon, through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers. Cheers.